0: Sure, today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks, that
1: one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross? Is that no one gets injustice? If you if you end up
0: under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected His provision for you, and you are justly punished for your sins what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The Extent of the Atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Alright, hey, welcome to Making the Hedge. My name is Josh Gibbs. I will be your host for the evening. Uh, I think you've got a pretty good uh, debate that should be taking place tonight. Uh, with the topic being the limited atonement, or particular atonement, whatever you want to call that. Uh, But it's going to be in a question format, uh, which is, for whose sins did Christ die? I think that the introduction scene says a lot about um, what I would believe uh, is the traditional perspective when it comes to um, the atonement of Christ for the sins being for the whole world. That will be my position in the traditional perspective. Uh, then we've got Terry Basham with us here as well. Uh, he's a pastor down in Oklahoma, and uh, he has accepted uh, my challenge on Twitter. I, I put out a challenge on Twitter saying, hey, if uh, any any Calvinist would like to debate limited atonement, I'd be willing to do that. And Terry said, I'll debate you. So here we are. Terry, welcome to the show. And, well, thanks, uh, man. thanks for joining us, man.
1: Thank you for the chance. It's nice to talk to you.
0: So... um. Right, so you're from Oklahoma. I, I've got to ask before we get going into this thing. Did you watch the national championship last night? And
1: um, believe it or not, I don't care two licks about football.
0: What? You don't? Oh, that is kind of strange. Oklahoma, man. I thought all you I'm, guys were down. But,
1: I'm not, I'm not from Oklahoma. I'm from Illinois. That's right. And the uh, the Fighting Illini's football ain't that great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that's awesome. It wasn't.
1: It wasn't that big of a deal to to me when I was a kid. So.
0: Nice. My dad, my dad didn't care about it either, so that's probably part of it. Oh, all right. Well, I, I guess I can't say much about that then. So that's all right. That's all right. Um, Clemson took took home the championship again. So that's I uh, I don't know Alabama and Clemson, man. They've two dynasties. I like to see them going to battle like that, but uh, yeah, that's and,
1: cool. Yeah. Watch the I watched the replays this morning at the gym on uh, ESPN. Okay. it look like, like a fun game to watch. Dude, if you're a Clemson I fan. I
0: off. Um, probably I don't know I'd say a little bit after halftime, they were up like 37 to 14 or something I was like well yeah you're not coming back from that so just shut it down but anyway so all right let me put this up for you who are viewing live Uh, we've had some coming in and some dropping out so far Uh, this is going to be a screenshot I think this is the screenshot for um, what the structure is going to be that way you guys can see it uh, this is what Terry sent me on Twitter. He says limited atonement equals Josh denies, Terry affirms, so I'm going to deny li- limited atonement, which means that I would adhere to an unlimited atonement uh, in the sense of who it's available to and Terry will affirm that there is a lim- limited atonement in the sense that it's not available at all. Uh, I'm actually going to open this thing up, uh, 20 minute opening, uh, then Terry's going to follow with a five minute rebuttal. Terry will follow it hi- with his 20 minute opening. Uh, right after his rebuttal, then I will rebut that. We'll go into 15 minutes of questions each and then we'll wrap up with five minutes of closing. And he added down here at the bottom, I included that in the screenshot that I have to admit my error. So I responded back, I didn't include that. I will not be admitting my error, but uh, I think Terry, by the end of this, he, you're gonna have to, you know, so. <laughs> Anyways, all right, so uh, we, we're gonna open it up to you guys at the end, uh, open questions like we do every time. Um, with these online debates and we'll go from there so uh, anyway so Terry I wanted to I, I we didn't do much of an introduction but you are a pastor down in Oklahoma you're from Illinois how did you end up in Oklahoma uh,
1: um, long, long story I've been a pastor uh, for 13 years not at this church for 13 years but I've been a senior pastor for 13 years. Uh, I'm an independent Baptist. And uh, I'm an independent Baptist, but I'm not an independent Baptist. I'm not the prototypical independent Baptist. But it uh, you just bounce around following the, uh, the job. And uh, six years ago, I came here to Oklahoma to pastor a church. It was a Sovereign Grace Independent Baptist Church, a.k.a. a Calvinistic church. Not Reformed, but uh, Calvinistic. And so um, I've been preaching since I was 18 years old. That's uh, 20, 22 years now. So it's trying to understand the Bible and make the gospel known to people. Uh, from Illinois, my dad, my dad was a pastor in Illinois.
0: Okay. Uh, my whole life. So uh,
1: I'm, I, I grew up in this business. So uh,
0: that's that's the long and the short of it. So have you been a Calvinist your whole life?
1: No, I became a Calvinist in about 2007, 2007, in the second
0: year of being a pastor. Really? Uh, Yeah. That's kind of interesting. So your dad wasn't a Calvinist?
1: No, my dad was not a Calvinist. My dad was not the prototypical, independent, fundamental, premillennial, temperamental Baptist, even though he is all of that. He is premillennial and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But there's different sects. I always say that word wrong. (laughs) there's different kinds of independent Baptists. And the kind I grew yeah. up with were not easy believism, were not easy were not bus ministry people. It was a more conservative, what I call like real Baptist. They weren't in it for the, for the hype and the glam. They just wanted to preach the gospel. Yeah. And so I grew up with a different view of salvation um, than what most independent Baptists have. And then when uh, I went to college, I went to college at a school that was a, a Jack Hiles, Uh, sort of place, real big on that kind of stuff. And that really caused some problems uh, for me. And then uh, when I got out of college, I went and I I was assistant pastor at a few churches. And then um, I moved to Kansas. I lived in Lawrence, Kansas, not far from you over there. And um, I was actually preaching for James Beller, a pastor in the St. Louis area. He's dead now he gave me a book called America in Crimson Red. And I read it on my breaks at my job, you know. And mm-hmm. it's about the Baptist it's about the Baptist struggle in America. And I was really struck by how he was talking about this guy named Shewell Stearns, who was, he said, the greatest American Baptist hero, greater than Jack Hiles and any of any the independent Baptist people. And, uh, and then I was really blown away when he said that Stearns was a, a particular Baptist, which meant he believed in limited atonement,
0: yeah. and
1: I, you know, I got on Google and googled Sandy Creek Church and stuff like that. Found out that they were Calvinists, and that I thought that's interesting. That's my forefathers, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, put him back in my mind. Read some, read some other stuff. Read Spurgeon's defense of Calvinism, which I thought was at the time I was not impressed by it. And then I became a pastor in Texas, and. Uh, when I was studying the Bible there, uh, I really had to produce sermons. Just making sermons is a lot of work. And uh, I started to see that the single theme of the Bible was redemption. It's Christ from beginning to end. And so um, I used to dismiss all the Calvinistic passages just like everybody else does, just like just like you do. And I had my little... Uh, I didn't know I was a dispensationalist, but I was a dispensationalist. And I used that framework, Israel and the church had to be separate. Therefore, promises are to Israel, not to the church. I still use the Schofield Bible every day. (laughs) And I followed Schofield's notes. But then I bought a Bible that didn't have any notes in it and started reading it. And it was hard to find the divisions without Schofield's headings. And then uh, um, I started reading theology. So they didn't teach systematic theology where I went to college at. I started reading theology. And um, all that led me to understand. There's a few, a few providential things took place that caused me to change my mind about Calvinism. And then uh, then once I changed, I had to tell my wife I'd become a Calvinist. and She's written some blog posts about it called What to Do When Your Husband Becomes a Heretic. and. Uh, <laughs> Because she really, when I, I, we were laying in bed one night and I told her, I said, Dear, I think Calvinism is true. She said, Well, we're going to have to get a divorce. (laughs) Because she'd grown up hearing that's the rankest heresy out there, you know? So So, she she is now. Uh, And so, in talking to her, because she had all, because my my wife was a Bible reader, a student, very smart girl, and, uh, by the time I had answered all of her objections, I, w- I felt I was pretty well grounded in, in, in the truth. Because she asked me questions I couldn't answer. You know? I had to go back and figure it out and study and work things through. And um, once I convinced her that it was true, I felt like, hey, that's the greatest victory ever. And then as far as an apologetic sense, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So uh, since then, we've just been trying to serve the Lord best we know how.
0: I hear you, ma'am. Well, I, I'm pretty excited about uh, tonight's topic. I think that it's uh, it's real personal to me uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, I, I think that it it has a lot to do with the character of God. I think a lot of it has to do with um, you know uh, it, just what God intended, what what the extension of the atonement was, and um, you know. So I I think that we're going to go ahead and get into it, uh, but I want to see if you had anything that uh, you wanted to throw in there before we get get started here.
1: Nope. Go ahead.
0: Alright, man. So, I'm going to... Uh, if, if For those of you who are watching, I'm going to put this uh, little countdown timer up here. Uh, you should be able to see it. We're going to go 20 minute opening statements. So, let me get this up here. It it actually is kind of weird. It doesn't go... Um, it, it doesn't actually go to... Um, Trying to do two yeah. things at once it, it doesn't do you, go like exactly do you, so um, do you want me
1: to do you want me to time you and I'll hold up five when you have five minutes left and one when you got one minute left
0: No, I've got it on the screen I can see it all right okay
1: so, I can't see anything so I'll just use my when it's my time I'll use my phone
0: yeah you're gonna have to use your timer unless you yeah. want me to I can hold it I can hold it up if you want however you want to do it uh, I
1: don't know if I can trust you so I don't know
0: <laughs> that's funny um, but, yeah, we have had a few conversations. I've got about 30 seconds until my time starts. But, um, anyways, yeah, Terry and I have had a few conversations over the phone together. Um, I don't know. We probably, the last conversation that we had was probably last week or the week before. And then before that, we had talked, I don't know, like nine months ago or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really appreciate the, the uh, willingness to reach out to me and, and kind of explain uh, why you believe what you believe. And not just in in a confrontational way, but uh, in a way that we can learn and grow from each other. So hopefully we can do that tonight and pick it up from there. So, Alright, so here's what I'm going to do. I want to define my terms first. I'm going to give a historical perspective and uh, then give it a textual support for the unlimited extension of the atonement. And I think it's important to consider uh, alongside the historical perspective of when limited atonement was actually introduced into church history. That's something that I'd like to talk about. Uh, so, in a sense, Terry, uh, it may be, may not, probably won't be difficult for Terry because he's pretty grounded in, in in what he believes. I think for those of you who are listening to uh, his testimony about when he became a Calvinist and how he became a Calvinist, you can sense that. Uh, but the material that, that I have got, a lot of the material that I've used um, primarily comes from uh, David Allen's The Extent of the Atonement. Um, So uh, Terry, in a sense, is going to be debating (laughs) David Allen here um, in the material, not so much the delivery. So the objective uh, of Terry, for those of you who are watching, Terry has an objective that he has to show a limited effectual atonement that is only for the elect in light of Scripture. So you can't go to theology. You can't go uh, to philosophy. You've got to stick with the Scripture. And I think that that's going to be what he's going to attempt to do. Uh, but for me, on the unlimited side, Terry can have all the limited uh, the limited atonement verses that he wants showing there's a particular people that the atonement is actually limited to. Uh, but for me, all that it actually has to take is one verse showing an unlimited atonement. Now, why do I say that? The reason that I say that is because the Bible stands up to logic, which means uh, that if there's a logical fallacy, uh, that the Bible has to be able to stand up to it. Now, when I say that, I'm saying that Terry can have all the limited atonement verses that he wants but if i have one unlimited atonement verse that would that would completely derail all of the limited atonement verses together because of what we call the negative inference fallacy. The negative inference fallacy would say, well, just because this verse or this passage says that Christ atoned for these particular people does not mean that Christ did not atone for anybody else other than these particular people. So if I can show and prove exegetically that the Bible shows there is an unlimited atonement, then that has to thereby and therefore uh, uh, cancel out limited atonement in itself because of the negative inference fallacy. So when you hear Terry say things like Christ died for the sheep, or the church, or for Paul, it does not exclude an atonement for anyone other than those particular groups. Now the, when, when I, I take the stance that limited atonement, the reason I don't believe in it is because it does fail exegetically, it fails theologically, it fails historically, it fails systematically, practically, logically, and systematically. So I said systematically twice Uh, but I think the, the, the key to, um, what I'm going to get into tonight is going to be the exegetical side and the historical side. I don't know if we'll have time to get into the, any, any of the others, but, um, that's, that's primarily what I'm going to be focused on. So when someone lacks, this is a quote, I I think this is, this is a, a pretty good quote. Something that I heard David Allen say, he says, when someone lacks to see things the way they really are, there's nothing so mystifying as the obvious. And I think that when it comes to an unlimited atonement, if you're just reading the plain text of Scripture, there, it, it's impossible to come away with a limited atonement view uh, just by looking at it without uh, looking at it through a lens of a systematic theology um, or philosophy or some other um, external source that's brought into the text. I think if you just look at the plain text, you're going to see what the plain text says, that that Christ not only intended to save the world, but he he extended the atonement to the entire world. Uh, so now we have to d- define the terms, all right. Uh, I just explained the intent; that would be the purpose for the atonement. Why did Christ die? What we're talking about tonight is going to be the extent of the atonement. For whose sins did Christ die? And uh, then the third part of the atonement is going to be the actual application, which means how is the atonement actually applied, all right? So the atonement of Christ is—is uh, is it sufficient? Is—is. Is, uh, let me see, let me re- reword this. The atonement of Christ is either sufficient or it's efficient to save anyone or everyone. All right, so this is what we, we, we would call the Lombardian formula. Peter Lombard came up with this in, in history. Uh, in dealing with the atonement, he would say um, that the, the atonement is sufficient to save all. He was a Calvinist. Uh, it's sufficient to save all, but it's only efficient to save those who he actually intended to save. And uh, Peter Lombard uh, and the majority of, of Calvinists throughout history until the ninth century all held to an unlimited atonement. And uh, I think that's something that I'm going to talk about. But uh, when you hear the sufficiency and efficiency formula that's spoke about by uh, whether it's a high Calvinist or um, a hyper Calvinist today, uh, it's not used in the same sense that Peter Lombard used it. And I think that's something that we, we would need to iron out. If that's, if that's something that Terry would go into, I don't know if it is, um, but we could consider that. So the gospel is simply this. The gospel is the death burial and resurrection. And uh, when it comes to the gospel, um, we have to take into consideration that, and I want you to hear me out when I say this, because it it may sound heretical, just just right off the the top to say, that the atonement of Christ doesn't actually save anybody. All right? So that what that means is the death of Christ doesn't do anything for you uh, without Christ being risen. And uh, Paul even acknowledges this and says this, that if Christ be not risen, then you've believed in vain. All right? So when we consider the gospel, it's not just the death and the burial of Christ, but it's the resurrection as well. Uh, but when we when we get to um, uh, the atonement and, and the particular aspects of the atonement, um, to say that there's a limited atonement, that Christ only atoned for a certain particular people, I think that that, that definitely brings in uh, another aspect of the gospel that's not in the plain text of Scripture. And I, I, hopefully Terry and I can discuss this and get into it a little bit. Uh, but the application of the atonement, it, 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 ap- it answers the question, when is the atonement applied to the, to the sinner? The, it, this question's got three possible answers. It's either applied in the eternal de- decree of God, which would be in eternity past, which many hyper-Calvinists would hold to this view, which would mean that you are the elect of God in eternity past, and therefore... Uh, Christ saw uh, the atonement for your sins on the cross in eternity past, and therefore um, you were saved in eternity past. There's no possible way for you to go to hell. So God put you on the elect board in eternity past. Now, two, it's applied at the cross to all the elect at the time of Jesus' death. Some hyper-Calvinist and some high-Calvinist would hold this position, which is called justification at the cross. So that means you were saved when Christ died because the atonement actually uh, did what it intended to do. It was effectual when Christ actually atoned for your sin. So you were saved at the cross. That's in time at the cross, all right? Now, that doesn't take into account the gospel and faith and hearing and believing and all those things, which uh, would would really make it difficult for someone who holds to that position. The third aspect of it would be applied at the moment the sinner exercises faith in Christ, right? This is what I believe. And this is what the majority of Calvinists have believed throughout history, uh, Most High Calvinists, all moderate Calvinists, all uh, Arminians, all non-Calvinists hold this view, which is the biblical view. So the ultimate cause of the application is also in dispute, since Calvinists want to argue that those who believe in a libertarian free will will ground the decisive cause of salvation in man's will rather than in God's will. And free will isn't the, the discussion of t- uh, tonight's topic, so we'll we'll keep it to limited atonement. But... Um, now there's there's I want to list a few names here and see what they all have in common. All right, there's 16 names. I'm not going to list all 16, but I'll list a few that are uh, that are probably you know most well known to those of you who are, who are viewing viewing live or will view this later. Uh, all of these guys have something in common: John Calvin, Bollinger, Cranmer, Richard Baxter, Preston, Bunyan, uh, John Howe. Uh, Stephen Charnock, Edward Polell, Isaac Watts, Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, Thomas Chalmers, Phil, uh, Philip Doddridge, Ralph Wardlow, Charles Hodge, Robert Dabney, uh, WGT Shedd, J.C. Riley, and A.H. Uh, Strong. What do all of them have in common? They're all cavernous, okay, but what do they all have in common? Every one of those guys did not teach limited atonement, and they wouldn't stand for it. Um, they're all, all 16 of those guys um, did not believe in a limited atonement. They didn't teach limited atonement, and that's that's really shocking to most people. So when you see a Calvinist that holds to limited atonement, um, it's, in my opinion, it's safe to call them either a hyper or a high Calvinist because it's it exceeds the teaching of what Calvin even held to. Calvin did not teach a limited atonement. He didn't believe it. He, uh, he never believed it. He never taught it. And uh, you'll hear, th- that'll be the last quote that I give, is, is uh, is, um, John Calvin's last words on his deathbed, and and you'll see that just from his last words. Okay, so uh, let's see. The issue of the extent of the atonement it looms large in Reformation history. It was the single most debated issue at Dort. Uh, Dort really made it final that this is what um, what, and it was really soft. I think that I think that Terry and I we kind of talked about this before we went into the broadcast um, ab- about you know what what's kind of a softer. Calvinism and what's kind of a harder Calvinism he would he would hold to a harder Calvinism and he doesn't pull any punches He says this is what it is. Do what you want with it Um, And I think that's a pretty consistent Calvinistic position to say, you know what? This is what we believe do what you want with it, you know, and obviously he's going to come at it from um, The perspective that this is what scripture teaches and I'm going to come at it from a perspective that that is not what scripture teaches so uh, with that said Um, It was the single most debated issue at Dort. The final committee, they actually modified the language and deliberately made it ambiguous in order to accommodate those high Calvinists who believed in limited atonement, or what you would call strict particularism. Uh, And those guys like John Davenant and others uh, from the British and the German delegations who actually rejected strict particularism, Uh, they believed that Jesus paid um, the penalty of the sins for all of humanity. So it was sufficient to save all. Uh, they held that. So it was kind of a split decision, uh, but they, they put it in there um, really in, in an ambiguous way. But uh, I want to say this. I mentioned it earlier. The first person in church history who actually explicitly held a belief in limited atonement, it was Gottschalk, uh, Gottschalk of Orbi. Uh, this is from, it's in the 9th century. He lived from 804 to 869. And contrary to what some Calvinists think, Augustine, you know, you would think that he was the actually the first guy to hold a limited atonement, but he didn't actually hold that view. Um, On the other hand, Gottschalk, he actually stated that uh, Christ was not crucified and put to death for the redemption of the whole world. That is, not for the salvation and redemption of all mankind, but only for those who are saved. There were three French councils who condemned both Gottschalk and his views. In the Heidelberg Confession, which actually preceded uh, the Synod of Dort, um, they anathematized anyone who held to the view of limited atonement in two of their articles. Here's what they say. They said the doctrine of election to holiness and salvation in Christ or the positive and edifying part of the dogma of predestination is indeed incidentally set forth as a source of humility, gratitude, and comfort. Uh, it goes on to say, but nothing is said of a double predestination or of an eternal decree of reprobation or of a limited atonement. These difficult questions are left to private opinion and theological science. This reserve is the more remarkable since the Uh, Since the authors, as well as all other reformers, except uh, Melanchthon in his later period, were strict predestinarians. All right, now let me get to the textual side of this. I think um, I've got to get to this, and if I have time, I'll get back to um, some some of these other key things that I'd like to address. But if I don't get to the text, then I really have failed to do anything of what we actually wanted to do tonight. So um, I, I think that when we're going to look at the text and we look at terms like world, all, those are, I, I think it's a pretty exhausted argument when it comes to limited atonement. You can, if you want to have a debate on that or listen to a debate on, on words like that, that's, that's fine. I think that maybe we can get into that. But I'm going to list uh, a few verses, and I'm going to list uh, some things about what um, Calvinists in the past have actually said about these, these verses. So in 1 John uh, 2, verses 1 and 2, I want to read that, and then I'm going to read... Um, a comparative verse It says this: My little children, uh, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right. So if we're just looking at the plain text of Scripture, we'll say the whole world is pretty clear. Uh, it's got to mean the whole world. So uh, in that case, we've got to we've we've got to have it redefined for us that the whole world doesn't actually mean the whole world. Uh, but if we look in, in the context and we see how the world is used uh, throughout John's epistles, it's actually used 85 times. Uh, well, it's used 80 times in, in the Gospel of John, and then it's used 15 times in, in, uh, in the other three uh, epistles, not to mention the book of Revelation. But um, it's, So it's used 95 times total, and every single time the word world is used, um, it's consistent to say that um, that the world means uh, all without exclusion. Um, so in 1 John five nineteen it, it says this, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Okay, so we've got a, d- another definitive verse here that shows that the whole world lieth in wickedness. Well, if that's not all-inclusive, uh, and it doesn't exclude anyone, um, if it is all-inclusive, then that means that the whole world lieth in wickedness, and that there's not anyone in the world that doesn't lie in wickedness. All right. Now, here's what Dabney said on this. Uh, in in relation to 1 John 2, 1 and 2. He was a Calvinist reformer in the 19th century who denied limited atonement. He says, But sacrifice expiation is one, the single, glorious, indivisible act of the divine redeemer, infinite and inexhaustible in merit. Had there been but one sinner, Seth, elected of God, this whole divine sacrifice would have both needed to expiate his guilt. Uh, Would have been needed to expiate his guilt. Had every sinner of Adam's race been elected the same one sacrifice would be sufficient for all. We must absolutely get rid of the mistake that expiation is an aggregate of gifts to be divided and distributed out. One piece to each receiver, like pieces of money out of a bag to a multitude of poppers. Where the crowd of poppers greater, the bottom of the bag would be reached before every pot or popper got his alms, and more money would have to be provided. I repeat... This notion is utterly false as applied to Christ's expiation because it is a divine act. It's indivisible, inexhaustible, sufficient in itself to cover the guilt of all the sins that will ever be committed on earth. This is the blessed sense in which the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.2, Christ is the propitiation, the same word as expiation, for the sins of the whole world. Alright, so that's uh, John Dabney on 1 John 2.2. Uh, John 3, 14-16, I'm going to read this. Hopefully I'll have time to read what Dabney says on that, but I don't know if I will. Let me read a few other verses. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Calvin says that this all is all-inclusive, and it defines the many of verse 12. So the many is not exclusive, and that statement to be limited in atonement, but it's all-inclusive based off of uh, verse six, and that's Calvin for you. Uh, Romans five eighteen and nineteen. Therefore, as one, by, uh, as by one, the offence of the judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That would be Adam uh, in Genesis. Even so, by the righteousness of one, that would be Jesus, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So sin entered the world and has touched all men who have ever come into the world, and therefore the atonement in the very same verse is contrasted to the second Adam, that the atonement is uh, is set forth to provide the propitiation for sin to all people. So in verse 19 it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. If we take the definition of the many and the all in Isaiah fifty-three six and twelve, as John Calvin interpreted it, we can apply that to Romans five eighteen and nineteen as well. That many means all. Second Corinthians five fourteen through nineteen. I'm not going to read them all, uh, but it says this: If one died for all, then all were dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth we know no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh. And it goes on and goes on but um, you see in verse 19 it says Twit God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the world the word of reconciliation so therefore if the ministry of reconciliation the word of reconciliation is uh from Christ to the Christians uh, to reconcile the world to himself it, it's got to mean that it's a genuine, um, reconciliation, which means that it's possible for the whole world to be saved in the sense that the gospel is to go out to the whole world through the reconciliation of the church. So if, if that's the job of the church, to preach the gospel to the whole world, uh, Terry's under the obligation to prove that um, some people are going to have to hear the gospel in order to be condemned, as opposed to some people be, uh, hearing the gospel in order that they might believe. All right, so that's the great contrast with the commission that God has given to Christians, that it's a genuine offer of salvation for all. All right, 1 Timothy 2, 4 and 5, it says, Who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, uh, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. All right, so there's the plain text of Scripture again, saying he gave himself a ransom for all. 1 Timothy four ten. Says for therefore we both labor and suffer repro- reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. So you've got a distinguishment of uh, not only is the Savior of all men, but especially to those who believe. Uh, Titus 2:11 for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness blah 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 uh, and goes down and so on. Uh, in verse 13 it says. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purity, unto himself a peculiar zealous of good works. And uh, let's look at this, Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, um, uh, it goes on to say, uh, crowned with glory and honor, that uh, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. All right. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and under them that look for him shall appear the second time with, without sin, unto salvation. So, here here's my point. I'm. I don't have to read all of those verses. I want to read. I want to read. No, I'm not going to read that. Yeah, I'm going to read this one. Uh, but there were false prophets in Second Peter two one also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Privily shall be bring in the animal heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and brought upon themselves swift destruction. So there you've got 13 passages that I've read read to you that I would say is a plain text of Scripture showing an unlimited atonement. Keep in mind, there only needs to be one text to prove an unlimited atonement. Terry has uh, many texts that he can go to to prove a limited atonement, but if there's just one that proves an unlimited atonement, then Terry has failed at his job to prove a limited atonement tonight. So Terry, I'll open it up to you for your five-minute rebuttal. Let me put the five minutes on the clock. and you're good to go whenever you want
1: so josh has told us that uh our responsibility is to prove unlimited atonement and if there's one verse as a universal passage then i failed an interesting standard um i don't think josh would take that on every theological argument that he would make but we'll let that lay for now then we had a lot of talk about the historical um historical importance i think that's pretty funny Actually, coming from a guy who is a, a dispensationalist and who hold, and, and is not just a, a dispensationalist, but is a modified dispensationalist in the sense that's even modified from what was originally taught by Ryrie um, early early in the, in the 20th century. So, uh, just because something is 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 new doesn't mean it's false. Uh, this whole fascination with the rescue rapture is. Uh, basically a new thing. So I I don't think think history is important. Um, I don't believe what I believe because of history. I believe it because of the scriptures. But if we, Josh mentioned something about the, when does atonement apply? When does atonement apply? No, that was a good point. The the three views. uh, Eternity, in eternity, at the cross, or at belief. I think we'd have to say it was at in eternity, because Jesus Christ has been counted as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus stood forth as our surety in eternity. In eternity, God declared that Jesus would be the one. And that wouldn't change in Josh's view or mine when the plan of redemption was originated. Uh, Josh may believe that uh, the redemption of Christ on Calvary for his chosen people was plan B but that would mean that God would fail, and he has and He changes his purposes and plans. So I would, I would think that we wouldn't agree with that. Some of the verses he points out, um, well, but from a historical perspective, I wrote this down, it's worth saying, uh, the Waldensians in 1120, in their confession, um, which I, th- I think Josh probably would agree that that's more like the people he would say are his uh, spiritual forefathers, other Waldensians who were, uh, not Protestants. Maybe they were Protestants. They're not Catholics, but they held the true form of the gospel in the uh, the mountains in France and Italy. But they, their statement about the extent of the atonement in 1120, mind you, before the councils, was that the blood of Christ, and the death of Christ, was sufficient. Not sufficient. Not my exact wording. Was uh, for those who would believe. This whole idea of the blood of Christ being for anybody other than those who believe was not a part of their understanding of the scriptures, and that's and that's pretty far back, 1120. Uh, a few of these verses. I'm glad Josh bought us some of these verses. I wonder if Josh would tell us, uh, I'm sure you will tell us, Josh, of what propitiation means. Propitiation, expiation, and the result of propitiation. Because if propitiation actually took place, Actually, took place. It means something very important. It was interesting here. You use First John 5:19 as an example of um, the whole world lying in wickedness. When John himself, let me let me turn there right quick. I got about 90 seconds left, but I should have left my fingers in my Bible. But You've got two minutes. I was just looking at my clock. Okay, let's give me the high sign when it's done. Let's listen to 1 John 5:19. And we know that we are of God. And the whole world lieth in wickedness. That's two groups. Believers are not in wickedness. They're not they've been taken out of wickedness. Colossians 1:12 through 13 talks about how Christ has translated us from the kingdom of darkness, aka wickedness, into the kingdom of light. So this is not a passage that's telling us that the whole world, including believers are in wickedness. Believers are outside of wickedness. they've been declared righteous by the blood of Christ. Romans 5, 18-19 is a good passage, but I don't think Josh understands the intent of it. The intent of that passage is to show us that Adam messed us up. We didn't have anything to do with it. Adam did it. And that salvation comes to us the same way. It's a universal problem. It's a universal solution. Is Christ. But we have nothing to do with either one. The sinner is passive in salvation. Until the Lord saves us by regeneration, faith, and repentance, and that kind of thing, which is simultaneous act. 2 Corinthians 5:19. We can talk. About, I'm going I'm to ask Josh about that in the question and answers, and you uh, may ask me about it. That's. Uh, I think that's my time. We're pretty close.
0: Okay. Uh, so you should have. Let me put this up there. You'll have 20 minutes. We'll go directly to your opening statement, and then I'll go into my five-minute rebuttal after that. All right, say go. Ready, go.
1: For whose sins did Christ die? It's a good question to ask and one that can be answered. He died for the sins of those who had and would believe his gospel. God chose from among men before the foundation of the world the persons that he would save by the death of Christ. We call those people elect or the chosen of God, and Jesus died for them and them only, and only they will be saved. And just as an illustration of that, Listen to Revelations chapter Revelations <laughs> Revelation chapter five, verse number nine, the song of the twenty-four elders. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred tongue and people. Now, how do I know that this is talking about a limited number? How do I know that Jesus died only for the elect? I'm going to try to answer that under three headings. Number one, plain statements made by Christ and statements made about Christ. Number two, what his death actually procured. And number three, universal texts that aren't really universal. So first of all, plain statements by Christ and others about him. In John 10:15, Jesus said, As the Father knoweth me, even so I know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Christ says that he lays his life down for the sheep. We know the whole world is divided into two groups, basically, goats and sheep. Sheep are the people who hear the voice of God and are saved, and goats do not, and they're going to go to hell. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that the reason that the Jews do not trust in him is, John 10, 26, Ye are not of my sheep. In John 10, 29, Jesus says, These sheep are given to him by the Father. In Mark chapter 10 verse 45 and Matthew 20 verse 28, it, Jesus says, even as the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now the Lord here uses the word ransom. In Webster's dictionary and on my on my computer it's Webster's 1913 edition, it actually cites Blackstone as the uh, source of the definition for ransom. Blackstone was wrote an English law dictionary. Is really kind of the foundational stuff for our for our law practices today. Here's the definition. It's a sum a, a ransom is a sum paid for the pardon of great offense and the discharge of the offender. Or it's a fine paid in lieu of corporal punishment. Jesus says this payment is not for all, but for many. Why not say everyone if he meant everyone? Interestingly enough, many is defined by Webster as consisting of a great number, numerous, and not a few. So keep in mind that even, even though the atonement is limited in scope, it's still a great number of persons are going to be saved. Like you do is read Revelation 7. You can see that pretty clearly. In Matthew 26, verse 28, Jesus said at the Lord's Supper, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. At the Lord's Supper, Jesus says the blood is not shed, for all men of all time, even those persons in hell. I'm not sure if Josh extends the atonement to those persons. But again, he uses the word many. And this passage is read weekly all over the world and churches as they observe the Lord's table. And surely, if the atonement were universal and unlimited, Christ would not want Christians and non Christians alike to be reminded of something that's not universal for all, etc. In Revelation chapter 14, verse number 4, they, they, they're, they're singing. Again, these were redeemed, about the 144,000, these were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God, to the Lamb. Verse 4 says these 144,000 were redeemed from among men. So not all men redeemed, and these guys believe, but these are redeemed from among men. That's a limited atonement. These men were in the world and among the world, but they, not the world, were redeemed. When were they redeemed? In eternity, at the death of Christ. It's his work. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, in the prophecy about Christ, it said that he shall save his people from their sins. His name is Jesus. It means Savior. That's what he's come to do. He's the Savior. He shall save his people from their sins. Before Jesus was born, it was said that he would not be the Savior of all man, of all time, and all places, but only the Savior of his people. Some object and say this is a reference to Israel, and yes, it is a reference to Israel, but not all Israel is intended here, only believing Jews. Plus, the Jews are not the only ones who are called his people. The Gentiles are also part of this people of Christ. The elect or the chosen are all those who are given to Christ by the Father. John 6.37 says, All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out in Romans 9, 24-25, a citation from Isaiah, it's not Isaiah, I think it's Hosea, it says this, Romans 9, 24-25, even us, chosen sinners, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. And here's the Old Testament quotation. As he also saith in Osi, or Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. So the people of God, The body of Christ, the church, the bride, the kingdom, whatever you want to call it, is a group of people composed of Jews and Gentiles only who have been redeemed out of the mass of humanity. In Isaiah 53, verse number 8, it says that he, Jesus, was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. Now there's that term again, my people. It sounds kind of like his people. He's dying for a known group of persons, a chosen group of persons. God says that the lamb will be slain, but not for all people. He says, mine. And In this great passage, we see God continue to say, Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. The implication of those words is pretty heavy. If it's for everybody of all time, then he was chastised on their behalf, suffered for them, paid for their sins. If it's for everybody, but those persons are not ever going to those persons. A lot of people are not going to get the benefit of it. He continues on. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. If all here is all people of all times, then universalism is the truth. And that's where you got to consistently come down at. Universalism is the the truth. Either he took away the sins of everybody and everybody's cool with God, or he only took away the sins of a certain people. Isaiah 53, 11-12. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify, is that crazy word, many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with transgressors, and bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He's counted with these people, a people given to him, chosen by him, loved by him, given to Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. For if the blood of bull... this is yeah, Pay attention to the reading here. I mean, in verse 13... You're gonna have a contrast between the Old Testament offerings and the offering of Jesus. Verse thirteen for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. So that's that's what they're saying. The Old Testament sacrifice, it sanctified the flesh. It straightened Israel up externally before God. It took away the uncleanness from them. The the high priest would is a good illustration of that. They would have their uncleanness taken away externally to go in before God, but he was not internally cleansed, just externally cleansed. These are types and shadows, of course. In verse 14, here's the contrast: If the blood of bulls and goats purified the flesh, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living god and for this cause he is the mediator of the new testament that by means of death for the the redemption of the the transgressions that were under the first testament they which are called might receive the promise of eternal life and then the end of the chapter it says again that christ was once offered to bear the sins uh, of many so what we see here is a contrast between the Offering of the Old Testament priest and the superior offering of Christ purging the conscience. And in purging the conscience, the sins are taken away from these people. They're no longer guilty before it. They're removed. They're they're innocent. The fountain is uh, purified, you might say. So you have the, the contrast there. And then in chapter 9, verse 15, you have this word for this cause. For this cause, because of what Christ is able to do and accomplish, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Now, people may say, well, I don't know about this New Testament business. Well, what does that exactly mean? Well, this is exactly what uh, Matthew says. He writes that Jesus said in Matthew 26, verses 28, where Jesus said at the Lord's Supper, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Again, yet this, this, this consistent use of this word many. In Hebrews 9.28, it says what Christ himself said at the Lord's Supper, he bears the sins of many and not all. Now, he cannot bear the sins of all, because if he did, that superior offering that purges the consciences, then that means that ultimately all will have their conscience purged at some point in their life, because that is how powerful and superior the death of Christ was. Now, let's talk about number two, what the death of Christ actually procured. What was accomplished? In Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When the Bible talks about the death of Christ here, Paul is actually saying, I am crucified with Christ. But Christ wasn't there on Calvary personally dying, but he was there in Christ. Just as Adam, the federal head of all man, uh, sinned, and because of Adam's sin, all people are sinners because of that single act of sin. In the same way, Christ as the federal head of those who were chosen in him died in their stead. Now, if the whole world were crucified with Christ, then all their sins are actually taken away, just as Paul's were, and all the sins of the elect. If they were, if he was crucified, they were crucified with him. And that language is important because in uh, in Hebrews chapter six it says if, if they fall away, they can't be renewed to repentance because they would have to be. It would have to be a second crucifixion if you could lose your salvation and come back. And this is what Paul is saying. It cannot be undone because I was with him. I'm crucified with him. In Romans chapter six verses six through ten, it says this: Knowing this that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, and death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And believers. That's what we have. We were crucified with Christ. We are dead in Christ. Now, in Romans chapter seven, which follows chapter six, incidentally, there's this fascinating little passage at the beginning of the chapter, where, check my time here, where uh, he had this illustration of a, a woman who is married to a husband. She's stuck to him till he dies, and if she goes and marries somebody else, she's an adulterer. And a lot of people misapply that as a teaching about marriage. But it's not. It's an illustration of our connection to the law. Because we died in Christ, therefore we are freed from the law because we're dead in Christ and free to be married to a new husband. We're free to be married to Christ, to be connected with him. That power of sin and bondage is broken and taken away. Romans chapter 7, verse 4, listen. Wherefore, my, my brethren, ye are also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now somebody may point out, well, oh Paul, he's talking to save people here. And Romans are not the lost people. And that's true. He is talking to save people. Because these persons he's talking to, Paul is telling them how secure they are in Christ. This is what your Christ has accomplished for you. And... Um, up on that page. Now let's talk about universal text that aren't universal. And, uh, it's like I got about five minutes maybe. Is that right? Five or six minutes?
0: You got 540. All
1: right. Josh has mentioned verses that support general or universal atonement that can, that contain words like propitiation, world, every man, died for all, reconciling the world, ransom for all, savior of all men. I only have time for a few, but Josh may bring up others later on. First John 2:2 2, 2 is important. John, we'll deal with this when John talked. Josh talked about it. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the propitiation, quote unquote, the appeaser for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation is the act of appeasing wrath and and conciliating the favor of an offended person. If the death of Christ was actually propitiatory and resulted in God's being appeased for all or each and every person's sin, and people are in hell, you shouldn't be there, and at the final judgment, they will again be wrongfully tried and condemned again. But this passage is not about salvation. This passage is telling Christians that if they do sin, Jesus is still their advocate, and his blood is not just enough for them, but for all believers in the world. They don't have to worry about sinning beyond the depth and breadth of his propitiation. And uh, just for historical reference, that's almost exactly what John Calvin says about this passage. The question may come, how do you know he's talking to save people? Because in My Little Children, he's talking about save people. I think it's chapter 2, verse 21, where he talks about, about that. John chapter 1, verse number 29. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, this cannot mean actually taking away the sins of all people without exception, because vast multitudes have died and do and will die in their sins and suffer for it. If the argument is that, yeah, that's true, but sins have to be taken away because of faith, then you'll have to say that John was mistaken in this declaration, or that the word world here is referring to the redemption of creation, which includes the elect And they created a world because God is going to redeem the entire cosmos to himself, which is the word there, the world is cosmos. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 6, this is a a favorite one of people. I'll read um, read all six verses. I I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. The breadth of the all in verse number 6 and in verse number 4 is defined by the all men in verse number 1, all kinds of men, that Paul describes in verse number 2. The, 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 the grammar and the language here is, is very plain. And then he uses this word ransom. You have to remember that the meaning of ransom means pardon and discharge of the offender. Are all men freed from punishment or is it only limited to some? Of course it's just some. If Christ actually ransomed all men of all time, then no one can go to hell. Notice also in verse number 6 that it is God who controls the timing of people receiving the testimony of the ransom. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4 Verse number ten, Josh has already read that for us. Who is the? How does go to the end of it? Who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe? Now, before a person earmarks this one for universal atonement, look carefully at what is actually said. Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is going through a tough time, and he writes two letters to him. He's, and Timothy is also a Roman citizen. And he says to Timothy, as a preacher of the gospel, he works and suffers because. He trusts in the living God, the highest being, the living God. Now, who is the living God? It says here, who is the living God? He's the Savior of all men. Now, in the Roman Empire, the Romans referred to Caesar as Savior. They referred to him as the Emperor Savior. And in cities and temples where they had two statues set up, that said, every city had it that said Caesar was the Savior of the citizens and deliverer of the city. It is proper then to conclude that Timothy, who lived his whole life in the empire, knew what Paul was saying. God is the highest power, and all people live under his benevolence. All people do. But they who believe in Christ enjoy a closer and better benefit because Christ is the true sovereign of all. Now, the idea of a superior citizenship is a theme of Paul in Philippians 3:20. He says our citizenship is in heaven. There's this higher connection that we have to to God through Christ while living under his general benevolence. So with all that being said, and with the facts of man's inability and God's elective purposes, we can be assured that Jesus died for the sins of the elect, and the elect are those who believe that Christ is their Lamb, Priest, and Savior.
0: Hey, good timing. you got 20 seconds left. so I'm going to put my five minutes up. I've got a five-minute rebuttal. And I believe we get into cross examination after that. Is that right? Right on.
1: Wait, who's first in? Who's first in that? You or me?
0: It doesn't matter. You can go first. You can go first. You oh. Yeah. Rock, paper, scissors. <clears throat> okay. Uh, let me see. That'll be good enough for 450. Okay. So this is going to be my rebuttal. Uh, so in in the overall uh, overarching theme of what Terry has. Just told us is that essentially the atonement of Christ is applied to a sinner when the payment is made. Okay, and uh, I had brought up the three options that show, well, when is the atonement actually applied? So that would be either in eternity past and the eternal decree of God, or it's at the cross, or it's at the point of belief. Uh, Terry said, well, once he, he said in his rebuttal, he said, well, the atonement was applied in eternity. Uh, at the eternal decree and then Terry went on to say well it was the eternal decree but uh, it was also at the at the cross so there's two conflicting statements that Terry said there I'd like to get clarification uh, probably in our cross-examination um, but I think that it all comes down to whether or not Terry is aware of it or not he he's actually using um, the same formula that John Owen used and and before we actually started the debate I asked him if he'd kind of held to the theory that John Owen held and, and you said well you weren't that familiar with it well I w- what I would tell you Terry is you and John Owen would get along really well because you're basically teaching the same exact right. thing yeah. and he's he's. I mean he he holds a really strong Calvinist, Calvinistic perspective in this regard because he held what was called the oh I need to switch my camera um, he held what was called the actual commercial atonement theory which was a creditor debtor uh, type of payment system which actually says well the creditor is is God, and uh, the debtor is uh, the sinner. So um, in that term, then you've got what, what would be the payment being made for that debtor. This guy owes the money to God that he cannot and never will be able to pay, which is the sin, the penalty for sin, and thereby if you have somebody who does have the ability to pay it, well, once it's paid, that's when it's applied, and uh, you're making the same exact distinction as what John Owen is making in the commercial atonement theory. Uh, now, what I would like to point out to you is that this is actually it's been it's been uh, refuted by multiple Calvinists alike. Now, here's I want to read something from uh, John Davenant, who is actually a signator on the at the Synod of Dort, and uh, he actually says he's. Let me see if I can pull it up here. Okay, so um, Davenant says, oh, where is it? Okay, so here's his, here's his words in regard to the, the commercial theory. Uh, he says, suppose a number of men were cast into prison by a certain king uh, on account of a, a great debt, or that they were condemned to suffer death on high treason, but that the king himself procured that his own son should discharge this debt to the last farthing, uh, or should substitute himself as guilty in the room of those traitors and should suffer the punishment due to them all. This condition being at the same time uh, promulgated both by the king and his son that none should be absolved or liberated except to, uh, those that should acknowledge the king's son for their lord and servant. Now notice uh, in this in, in this sense you've got um, the term propitiation being addressed in the sense that there's there's a satisfaction for the payment. All right, but that doesn't distinguish when that payment is applied, and I think that's the problem that uh, that Terry is making is he's not distinguishing when that that payment is applied. He's saying, well, as soon as the payment is made, then it's applied, and it's applied to those who it's intended to be applied to. Well, that's that's excluding when the application is is, is truly made in this sense that John Davenant, a Calvinist at the Synod of Dort, is actually acknowledging. He says and distinguishes that the payment is not uh, necessarily applied when it is paid, but that the, the, the condition is actually made that the king's son has to be sworn allegiance to in order for that payment to be applied. Now, this would be applicable to us as believers. And notice that Terry never said this once in those three options that we gave of when atonement is actually applied to a sinner and the fact that it's either applied in eternity past in the decree on the cross or when a sinner actually believes. Terry did not affirm that it's applied when the sinner believes and comes to Christ by faith. All right, that that was never applied. He's just saying simply that the, uh when the penalty is paid for, that's when it's that's when it's uh, that's when that's when it's covered, and that's not the case. Davinian is simply saying that the condition is that you have to accept Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, and therefore the payment is available to the entire world. Now, say there's six of these men who are who are sentenced to death, and the sin is is uh, their sentence is going to be for life, but that three of those men choose to not. Ex- choose to not swear allegiance to the Son, well, that's you in the sense saying, well, I don't want that payment, so I'm rejecting it, and therefore that it, the, the atonement is not applied to you. So I would say that's uh, one of the greatest distinctions that we have to make, um, that, um, that, that Calvinists are actually uh, uh, having an issue making is the difference between when the payment is made and when the payment is applied, so the difference of the extent and the intent of the atonement. All right. Let's go to cross examination. Uh, you have got. Are can we, I, one, is can it, I Ask a question. Uh, I don't care. Yeah.
1: Isn't this debate about the extent, not it the is. time of, not about the time of application?
0: Yeah, that's why I was. What's I was one making. One, so, but one, you sure. weren't making a distinction between uh, the extent and the application. What What I heard and the way that you presented it is that the actual extension of the atonement is when the atonement is applied because it's intended to be applied to whom it's it's extended. So I don't see a differentiation in what the application is. So you would say that the atonement is intended for those who God chose to save and therefore it's extended to those who it's intended and therefore it's applied to it was intended and extended. So they're all interlinked together. I'm saying there's a distinction between the intent and the extent that the intent is for uh, the purpose of redeeming and saving the entire world, the extent is um, it's it's uh, Christ actually did die for the entire world. It's sufficient to save the entire world, and therefore the application is it's limited to those who actually believe. But uh, So you've got 15 minutes of questions. Did you want me to go first here?
1: Uh, yeah, you can. Okay. That's why what, that's what I said a minute ago, so go ahead.
0: All right, let me get my timer up here, and let me get down to my question. So I did want to ask you this. It, it, it was kind of strange to me to hear you say that um, it, it, the application of the atonement was in eternity past and, and God's eternal decree. But I thought I heard you say again that it was that it was actually applied at the cross. Um, so which is it? Of those three options that I gave, which would you say is uh, the timing of when? The extension of the atonement is applied.
1: Well, in in eternity, Jesus Christ was designated as the Lamb, and uh, all the Old Testament believers, they they didn't go to hell. They were they were spared because of that, because of Christ's offering. So there is a sense in which it was actual because um, God began treating the elect or believers, whatever you want to call them, as redeemed. Before Christ actually went to Calvary in time and died for their sins, so um, I guess I'm, I never, I never thought about it in terms of what you said. Options one and two: eternity or at the cross. I don't. It seems like they would be um, the same. I think both both would be true. In, in eternity, Jesus did not actually die, but he was counted as slain and was our surety in eternity, our, our guarantor. And he came to Calvary. And died, and there he became our priest and our lamb, and now he's in heaven as the mediator between God and man. He's interceding for us. So um, I don't see, to me, I don't see that those would cancel each other out.
0: So who's Christ actually interceding for?
1: He's he's interceding for the redeemed.
0: So why is he interceding for the redeemed if they're predetermined to get saved?
1: Well, what do you think I mean? Well, it's your time to ask questions. When I say uh, interceding. Christ went to went to Calvary, and then he, through the eternal Spirit, Hebrews says, he went to heaven to the true tabernacle in the heavens, and offered his blood there, Um, and he sat down. So he's sitting down. He's no he's no longer pleading and begging. He's there upon the mercy seat as the eternal testimony that the elect sins are paid for. So that's what I mean by interceding or mediating. He's there. He sits there for us. Uh, Not all of the elect have been born and born again yet. Um, And the end of the world is not going to come and so all of those persons are born and born again So that's what he's doing. He's there for the for
0: the redeemed. So you would say that God doesn't actually want all men to be saved. I Would say that yes, So God doesn't love all men. I would say that yes, so God hates some men Yes from eternity past Yes before they've done good or bad Yes, so they were doomed from the womb Okay Um, Why in 2 Corinthians 5 does he actually give men the ministry of reconciliation to preach the gospel to all men in that case if he didn't really want all men to be saved?
1: Yeah. The ministry of reconciliation is what we do as we preach the gospel to the world. We're preaching the gospel. We don't know who the elect are, so we're preaching the gospel. And we don't know, and whoever believes that is elect. And so we go... When you're preaching the ministry of reconciliation, you're going into the world preaching Christ, right? You're out there preaching Jesus, the gospel. He's the answer. He's the one. He's the savior. He's the one who takes away sins. So that's our ministry: is declaring what Christ has done, what Christ has done, and um, to whom that's applied effectually. You know, God doesn't tell us who the elect are, so we just preach to everybody
0: and. Uh, so, how does that apply to infants? I know that this may be an emotional argument. I don't know if you want to go there, but are you willing to go there? I know you said that you you throw it out there. This is what it is. Do what you want with it.
1: Well, I don't mind talking about infants. Um, this is the favorite thing of people to talk about. It's not really on the topic of the of the debate, but I'm happy to talk about it. It is something everybody brings up. Um, so, well, what is I guess your question? In that about sense,
0: it, is the extent of the atonement extended to? Uh, me, a certain infant.
1: let me let me say what I believe.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I believe that all infants who die are elected by God to be saved, and they're also elected by God to die as infants. and they're regenerated by him in a way that's beyond my comprehension, just like regeneration in time is beyond my comprehension. and they are regenerated. And they all and they all are with the Lord now. That's that's my so, view. in some
0: sense, you would say all infants are elect if should they die in infancy. But at some point, they become non-elect. Some are non-elect and some are elect. How does? How where do you find that?
1: I, I didn't say that. I but said if that all of them infants, elect, d- infants, who, di- yeah, infants who die are elect to salvation. So that's all babies
0: who. Okay, let me, I'll get off of that subject. I, I think that, that that's kind of confusing to me. You're saying all babies who die are elect? Yes, yes. But, okay, that's just, I can't wrap my head around that, so I'm going to move on. Is, is, is the death of Christ actually sufficient to save the whole world as opposed to um, a hypothetical sufficiency? So what I'm saying is, is it actually sufficient or is it just hypothetically sufficient to save the whole world?
1: I don't. I don't like. I don't like the sufficiency efficiency terminology, because the atonement is not intended for the world. So why think about if it's sufficient or not for the world? It's not for the world. It's for the elect.
0: Okay. So where do you find the intention? Well, no, that's that's um, that's off. That's off topic. So let me ask this: uh, Are there actually any conditions to salvation, so that God would say, "Well, this is what you. This is what I'm expecting." In, in order for you to be saved or is it just completely unconditional God says you are elect you will be saved like is there any condition to salvation
1: I, I don't understand what you mean I guess and so yeah are, are you asking me if I believe that people are saved without believing
0: well I think that I, I think that eventually we would we would have to get to that point because um, when, when we're talking about the extent of the atonement for who, for whose sin did Christ actually die, then I, that would be that would be extreme, That would be limiting in itself, uh, not to include the application. Because I think that you would you would you would say the intention and the extension and the application they're all the same because they're the same people. There's no differentiation. Would you say that they are all the same?
1: I'm not sure I understand what you mean when you when, when you're. I'm not sure I understand what you're saying.
0: So, when we talk about the purpose of Christ's death, why did Christ die? And then we we talk about who He actually died for, and then we talk about well, who is the blood of Christ actually applied to? You would say they're all the same. There's no differentiation that Christ intended and purposed to save the whole world, but not the whole world. The whole world isn't saved. So therefore they're all the same person. There's you, you just don't have to draw a line of distinction between any of those three. Is that right?
1: Well, I don't believe that Jesus died for the whole world, as in each and every person who's ever lived. Um, because, because they were chosen, because they were redeemed, there will be a time when they, when they believe through regeneration. If it's in the, the case of infants, believe being regenerated and, um, believing as a result of that regeneration or you or I believing as a result of that regeneration um, I, I, I'm trying to understand and answer the question is that is that the answer you want
0: uh not really but that's that's okay um it, now let me ask you this I so when we're when we're talking about the extent of the atonement and we're saying it's only extended to the elect would you would obviously say that you are the elect right Terry You are a member of the elect. You are an elect person who is saved. Is that right? Yes. Well, how do you know that? How do I know it? Yeah.
1: Um, I'm trusting in Christ.
0: So if you trust in Christ... Let let,
1: let me let me let me and his spirit beareth witness with my spirit that I am a child of God from Romans 8 and 1st John. Um, I have assurance of my salvation as much as i can be assured um, i'm a christian i'm saved i don't go around uh, thinking of myself as one of the lucky as one of the lucky ones i guess this maille that you're driving at but uh, i'm trusting in christ and christ alone for my salvation and um, so that's how i know
0: so so say so you're but if it I, I don't want to do a hypothetical. So I would say, um, you know that you're elect because you believe the gospel. And all elect will believe the gospel. And no non elect won't believe the gospel. So if you're not elect, can you believe the gospel? No. Okay. So in in that in that sense, then why is uh Second Peter two one, it talks about the false prophets among the people, and it says, There shall be false prophets, uh well let me just read it but there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies even denying the lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction so when we're talking about the extent of the atonement we're saying well christ actually atoned for the sin of the whole world it's sufficient to save every single person but uh, it's not intended to save all people which would be your position um, how are there some people that are denying the Lord that bought them, and, and they're false teachers and they false prophets? And, uh, I mean, it, it, is that saying that Christ actually bought them, but that they're rejecting the, the purchase for them?
1: Uh, well, the, the, the word Lord there is a, is a, is a different word. It's not, it's not the same word that's used to refer to Jesus. It's not even denying the kurios that bought them. It's even denying the despotate that bought them. The despotate in the New Testament is referred to, uh, to, to to two groups of people: one is to the Lord God Jehovah or Yahweh, whatever you want to call him, or uh, masters who own slaves. Um, that's that's the two times that's the ways that's used in the New Testament. So here it's not talking about uh, Jesus; it's talking about God the Father, who purchased Israel, because that's the illustration. There were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. In Israel's day, there were false teachers in the congregation of Israel. They were not; they, were, they weren't redeemed, or they weren't; they weren't salvifically saved in that selection when God gave Egypt uh, for their redemption. So, uh, it's not talking about New Testament salvation there. Um, there, there is there is an argument that says that Peter is. Um, I can't remember the argument exactly, so I'm not going to use it. But that that's what I think about that passage. It's not talking about Jesus buying them, just in that general benevolence.
0: So you're saying general, this not
1: benevolence, but the oversight of God over all things.
0: Okay, so I, I I think I understand. You're saying this Jesus, this Lord, is not Jesus. It's a, it's an actual master over the slaves. So these people are actually slaves. And uh, so how does that actually apply? Uh, Am I hearing you on no, that?
1: No, so I are not actually word, slaves. I said the word despotate uh-huh. is used two ways in the New Testament. So
0: who's the Lord a reference to? I guess. I think I think it's the the Lord God. Okay. The Father. So he bought the Father, them. The Father. So the Father bought them. Yes, nothing. And, and the illustration
1: is um, talking about the Old Testament about the Jews when they were purchased from Egypt. He redeemed them. So he there bought was the salad. false prophets. Yes, but it wasn't. But it's not. It's not salvific. You know what I'm saying?
0: Well, how is it not what, salvific?
1: Well, be, was was they were all bought, of Israel, weren't they? Was Israel um, was Israel all saved on the night of the Passover? They're saved. Their sins are forgiven. Justified forever and ever. Or was it just a or was it just symbolic? Well,
0: I would. You can ask me that in your time if you want. I'm just, I'm, so what I'm asking that's, that's, is... That's
1: what I'm saying. It's, it's, I'm saying it's not... Go ahead, I'm sorry.
0: So you're saying this Lord is God the Father, that he actually purchased them, that they were Old Testament, it's a reference to the Old Testament, they were false prophets in the Old Testament, and they denied the Lord that bought them. So I thought you just told me earlier that the, all, all the elect would be saved and that Christ only paid for the elect, when you're telling me now that this is the Lord God who bought them and they are denying him, and it, so you have to make it non-salvific somehow. I don't understand that. How is it non-salvific?
1: Well, I'm trying to I'm trying to say to you, <laughs> is that this buying is not the redemption of Jesus. It's not
0: talking about Jesus here. So who? Uh, what was the purchase made?
1: What was the purchase made? Yeah, you
0: said that God the Father bought them. So what did He actually pay? What, God, what was He paying for?
1: You know, God the Father, when he, I'm I, I think I said it, He purchased Israel. Okay. When they, were in, when they were in captivity in Egypt, remember that?
0: Yeah, but you said even I the Old had, Testament saints were bought by the blood of Christ, but it was only the elect.
1: Yes, Old Testament saints who were believers, but not all of the saints in that in that redemption from Egypt, that was not a salvific purchase. They were not being they were not saved, they were not saved to give an everlasting life or regenerated.
0: Well when, the, once the, the blood of Christ was applied. Was from, what? Wouldn't you say obviously it would be a temporary thing, they went to Abraham's bosom and it it was it was limited
1: you're really you're really missing the point yeah go ahead totally missing the point
0: well i'll just be quiet and listen for the rest of the time
1: so you had israel in captivity right in egypt right
0: yes i'm
1: sorry i'm sorry for the rights but just to see oh you're good no worries you know what i'm saying shake a bush baby (laughs) they're in bondage to egypt the lord bought them he redeemed them from egypt it wasn't salvific. It wasn't salvific. He purchased them. He brought them out of Egypt. And among those persons who he purchased, you don't have to read very far into Exodus to see that this people who were chosen by God and brought out by him from Egypt, um, some of them were false teachers. Um, you could say even Aaron right off the bat is uh, erecting the Golden Idol. That's what I'm talking about in that physical, natural sense. The redemption of those persons, not not about it's not talking about, self, not about salvation. I don't, uh, I don't think this brought them here is talking about that because it's not the same. It's not the same word.
0: Well, yeah, that's kind of confusing to me. I um I think I, I don't know how you make that application of them coming out of Egypt and therefore it was the false prophets with them in Egypt. But anyways, it's your time. Let me put the 15 minutes up on there and we can roll with it. All right, whenever you're ready, man. Okay,
1: I'm ready. So, uh, exactly how far do you extend the atonement?
0: I think the extension of the atonement is uh, sufficient to save every single man, woman, and child who has ever entered the world in uh, time, eternity past, present, and future.
1: So, you believe that all persons are the object of the propitiary sacrifice of Christ? Yes. All per- all persons of all time? Absolutely. Uh, so, do you, agree, you do you agree with these definitions of this definition of propitiation? No. Nope. The act. No, I'm just the, <laughs> uh, the act of appease This is from Webster's. The act of appeasing the wrath and conciliating the favor of an offended person. The act of making propitious. Yes. So, when did that take place?
0: So the propitiation would be when the payment was made. Okay, but I I I quoted Davenant. Who was actually a Calvinist who drew the distinction and saying, "Well, just because the payment was made, um, you can't look at sin as a credit-debit, debt uh, creditor-debtor uh, type of scenario where, where there's a there's there's a debt and there needs to be a payment. There's, it's more to it than that, which would mean that it's moral, which would mean that um, when when there's an offense of sin against a, in, in a completely um, righteous eternal being, an infinite God." Uh, that there's got to be an infinite and eternal um, satisfaction for that sin. So it's not just the payment alone. The, the the actual penalty for that sin would have to be paid for. Not in the sense that, that the payment being made, but the payment has to be applied. So that's where I draw the distinction that the extent of the atonement is the payment. The application of the atonement is one's uh, faith and trust in Jesus Christ and, and accepting it for your payment, if that answers your question.
1: Yeah, I think so. So, in, in in the question of debts in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus says, "Forgive us our debts," we forgive those who um, are indebted. "Forgive our debtors," and in the, in the I think it's Luke who says, "Forgive us our trespasses," we forgive forgive those who trespass against us. Um, there's that's debtor that's debtor credit language. He's at, he's asking for forgiveness of these debts, of these debts. So. Um, I don't really have a question about that. Just a statement, okay. <laughs> uh, So, in propitiation, yeah, the word propitiation, and then you have the word, and you have ransom. Did he redeem the whole? It, yeah, I see what you're saying now. I, I see, I see your thing. I see your thing. I, yeah,
0: I think it'd thing. be kind of circular if we just, but yeah,
1: yeah, yeah I see, I see your thing. Well, let look at these. Let's just look at the passages. I think that's better than the rhetorical crap, anyway. First John 2, 1 through 2. Do you agree with my presentation that this is not about salvation? No. Who is John referring to as little children, believers or non-believers?
0: Uh, so I believe that John, uh, John would be writing to... Let me see, let me see, let me see...
1: Look at verse 12.
0: We're going to 12. Uh, Little children, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I run into you, fathers. Yeah, so I always always use this in the sense that there's seven stages of spiritual growth, so you can practically apply this to a Christian. so.
1: So John is talking to Christians.
0: I don't see why we wouldn't say that.
1: Okay. So do you agree that John is telling a small or limited group persons that the scope of the of the blood of Christ, of the propitiation of Christ is actually immense.
0: Um, I don't think that you can put a value on the propitiation of Christ. I, I think that that's it. You're going to love John Owen when you discover this guy because um, he, he tries to put in, in this sense, this question really tries to put a value on each drop of blood, each whiplash, each each, you know, whisker that's pulled out of his beard and all of those things, but, um, and says that each one of those things has a, an intrinsic value towards an individual. But I would say that if, if we're going to say that this is a small group that's being addressed here, uh, you could compare that to the small group that's addressed in Ephesians 1 and make it applicable, Even if you want to make it even, even more narrow, uh, that the application of the gospel or the extension of the gospel to Paul only, who says that Christ died for me, um, that you know Christ only died for Paul I don't think that we can actually make that application you know
1: have you ever heard the song deep and wide?
0: yeah yeah <laughs> there's a
1: fountain flowing deep and wide right are
0: you gonna sing it for me? no I don't
1: I don't do that <laughs> but uh so that that's what I'm saying immense to because it read it read it reads like do you think that verses one and two read like comfort for them as a primary meaning? If he, I, I say you sin not, but if any man sin he hath an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but the whole world. He's saying to them, Don't sin, but if they do sin, the blood is wide enough and deep enough that they're not going to outsend the scope of it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point because um, it, it shows the value of the blood of Christ, and I think that's when uh, Dabney actually said that if it was just Seth who died alone, it would require the entire uh, sacrifice of Christ and every drop of blood to cover for those sins. So um, it's not. So yeah, go ahead. So, so
1: you agree that John chapter two verses one through two, its primary meat its primary purpose is comfort. Or the believer who sins.
0: Oh, I don't. I, no, I. I don't think that it's necessarily comfort. I. I think that. Um, I, I. think that if you look at the context all the way back to the first chapter, he's talking about fellowship, and breaking fellowship. I don't think it's a, a matter of salvation. I think he's talking about. I think he's talking about. Uh, in chapter one, I think he's talking about fellowship. And if you're, if we're going to look at the propitiation, then it, it would obvious, obviously be salvific. Um, but yeah, I don't. I just. I don't know about the comfort side of it. I've never really thought about it in that light. So,
1: do 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 some Christians worry about messing up too much and losing their salvation? Yes. And and that's and that's that's what you that's what I think you see here is that is that. Yeah, but I don't let's, think you can lose
0: your salvation. I don't either. Okay. <laughs> well,
1: what I, what I'm saying is that that's what Paul is saying to these persons: is you're not going to lose it. It's the primary, the primary purpose. Here oh, is I see com- where
0: you're going with that. But okay, so what I would say, I mean, in, in response to that, in, in the context of what the topic of this debate is about the extension of the atonement, um, and we talk about the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Um, that that in that context, it's not just a matter of comfort. It's 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 a matter of doctrine of who Christ actually died for, and and if you compare this to how John uses. Uh, the word world in 1 John five seventeen that it's actually a reference to the entire world. And therefore, if you're going to say that uh, the 95 times that John uses the word world in, in his five, uh, you know, four, well, three epistles and then the gospel of, of John in the book of Revelation, then 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 you've got to find some, at some point out of those 95 times that the world doesn't actually mean world. And what I'm saying is every time John uses the word world in 95 times... It always means the world. So,
1: mm-hmm. well, I, I think I think you already said the other the other thing already that the primary purpose of that passage is not to talk about the extent of the atonement for unbelievers, but comfort for. No, Christians. you
0: said that. I'm saying that the primary the primary purpose of that passage is to actually show the extent of the atonement. Well, you
1: you agree with you agree with me until you realize what you agreed to. So, no, <laughs> I
0: said I hadn't really thought about it.
1: <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I misheard you. Uh, now let's talk about Second Peter, uh, chapter two. It's something we brought up earlier. Uh, do you agree that Peter, Second Peter two one, do you agree that Peter is saying that there are true prophets and prophecies as well as false ones? Yes. And in verse one, when it says among the people, who is that?
0: Uh, those are the false prophets among the people.
1: No, who are who who are the people?
0: Uh, the people, let's see, even as there shall be, so there were that, I don't know, it's sometime in the past, you could probably say it was, I, I've got a note here that says it was Matthew 10, 8, people, uh, um, let's see, well, I don't know that you could say it was Matthew 10, 8, so, I, it, it's obviously, obviously some people in the past, so.
1: Could it be Israel?
0: Uh, it could be, it could be somebody at Target, I don't know.
1: Yeah, somebody to target. Well, that wouldn't be in the past, though, would it?
0: Well, it could be if it was before he wrote that, but I'm being facetious. So, yeah, I don't really know who the people are. I think it's commonly taught that it is Israel, and I could agree with that. Yeah,
1: so uh, who bought them and the false prophets from Egypt? We already know this a little bit, but who was the person that bought them?
0: Well, I don't know that you can actually make it a specific... uh, point in time that's when they came out of Egypt so I would have to see where you get that reference from this context that this is that people and then I might agree with you but I would say that it's somebody in the past probably Israel not necessarily just when they came out of Egypt but there's obviously a purchase being made and when we're considering the fact that second Peter is is laying out for you uh, the doctrine of the atonement for Christ in many different scenarios in this particular scenario uh, he's showing you that the extent of the atonement is is uh, not just for those who believe, but even for the false teachers that God, through Jesus Christ, purchased every single human being, even if they don't believe on Him.
1: So, like Isaiah 40, this is Isaiah 43 1.
0: Uh,
1: but now, thus saith the Lord, that created thee, O Jacob, Bifflin, and that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, and thou art mine. If it is Israel in Egypt, the Lord did redeem them, He brought them out from Egypt to their redemption. Uh, to make him his own peculiar people. Um, but I, I don't have a question about that. That was, that was... anyway, next question. Uh,
0: but that doesn't yeah. say that it, that it was specifically to the time when they were brought out of Egypt in Second Peter 2. one. I don't see how you can make that reference. I mean, well, we could say that God bought them at, at, the, uh, at, at the crucifixion of Christ, which is when he actually bought them. So I don't see how you could say that them being brought out of Egypt was a payment for sin, if that's the application that you're making. I just don't understand.
1: Not, it for for some reason, when I say "bought," you think sin. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that. Purchased from Egypt, they were in bondage in Egypt, and the Lord brought them out of Egypt. He bought their freedom from Egypt with the life of uh, with the life of the firstborn. Yeah, but I don't see that
0: in the text. What I'm saying is, this text is actually talking about salvation. So it, it I would in, until in, unless you can prove otherwise, I'm I'm sticking with that that it's a salvific passage.
1: In in Second Peter two one. Yes. Uh, I don't see any. Uh, I don't see the word salvation, redeemed, justified.
0: Look at at the, I mean, you've got destruction at the end of verse 1, you've got evil spoken of in verse 2, in verse 3 you've got damnation slumbereth not, then you've got served unto, reserved unto judgment in verse 4, you've got the flood. It's all a reference to life and death and all of these things. So I think that it, 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 there's, it's it's about,
1: it's about the, it's about the opposite of salvation, judgment. Let's move on from that because it's no fun anymore. Okay. 2 Corinthians 5:18 through 19. You you brought this one up. Yeah. Um, so in, in verse 18, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ and given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. What do you make the phrase, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, to mean?
0: So that would be the proclamation of the gospel. Um, I think that with us being ambassadors of Christ and pro- proclaiming the gospel, that means that there's a possibility for the world to be saved. So when I'm talking about the extent of the atonement, I mean that it's let me, actual... Let me, uh,
1: let me, let me yeah, I yeah. interrupt you because the, the question is, the phrase, reconciling the world unto himself... Not imputing their trespasses unto them. What does that phrase mean?
0: I think it means the the ministry of reconciliation being given to Christians as ambassadors. In verse twenty, where he's telling where we are telling the world, be ye reconciled to God. So therefore, that it, with it being a ministry of reconciliation and reconciling the world to himself, it's a process that would mean that it has it wasn't actually done in the past, as you were saying, in an eternal decree or on the cross. That it's actually a point in time at belief and faith. So that's what I would say in, in that regard. The ministry of reconciliation is a process of actually preaching the gospel and people hearing it and believing, like the, the Bible says in Romans 10, that you you can't believe unless you hear. And how can you hear? It, so I think that it's all related that you have to hear the gospel in order to be saved. That it's not an eternal decree. That the, it's not God giving His life just for the elect only. So anyway, got about so a minute the, left.
1: So the phrase reconciling the world unto Himself. Does that mean? The world is reconciled to God.
0: Uh, I think if you look in verse 18, it says, "In all things, are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus, Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation." So, in that context. The rec- the, those who were reconciled would be us in the sense of that point in time where you actually heard the gospel and believed it and were put in Christ. I don't believe that you're put in Christ a moment before you believe, uh, just like Paul said that there were people that were put in Christ before he believed. And therefore, the ministry of reconciliation and the process of reconciliation is a point in time that you actually hear the gospel and believe. So uh, in in that sense, uh, who hath reconciled us to himself is, is a reference to believers who have already That's believed.
1: So right after reconciling the world to himself, it says, not imputing their trespasses unto them. So if the world is reconciled to God, and he has not imputed their trespasses unto them, then the world is actually reconciled to God, right?
0: Well, so I think you're you're trying to, um, to essentially say that I'm going you know, to adhere to a universalism if I say that the world is reconciled. So I think that when we're talking about the ministry of reconciliation, it's it's the proclamation of the gospel in the sense that if you have been reconciled, as they were in verse 18, that, that therefore your trespasses are not imputed against you. And uh, it, it doesn't say anything about the accomplishment of reconciliation in the sense that um, somebody hasn't or has been, um, but those who are reconciled are the ones who don't have those trespasses imputed them. So uh, that's that's all I see, is the gospel being proclaimed. Some people are reconciled, some people aren't. Those who are I uh, don't have any other trespasses imputed against them.
1: I, I don't see how you can dodge that. A, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a it's a bold thing you're doing. It's a bold thing. I, I admire you for your boldness. Reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses, that there is the world unto them. So either you have to say that this world is not all men without distinction and exception, or or it's something else or something else. All
0: right, so we've got five so, minutes for closing statements, and then we'll uh, then we'll go to open questions to the audience. Uh, it looks like we've got about 15 people or so that are viewing live. And uh, we'll just turn it over to you guys who are viewing. Thank you for sticking with us. We've been going for about an hour and a half now. So I know it's a little bit lengthy, but uh, we'll wrap it up here in about 15, 20 minutes and be done and give you guys a chance to ask some questions to either me or Terry and go from there. So. Alright, for my closing statement, obviously I've taken the position that Jesus Christ, in the extent of the atonement, he actually did die for the sins of the entire world, and that would include every single man, woman, and child. I think that I've consistently shown uh, that there is a universal atonement, that there's not one single uh, person who uh, didn't have the atonement um, sufficient enough to pay for their sins. I think that we've got to draw the distinction um, that even, even in this last example that we looked at in 2 Corinthians 5, that the atonement is 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 not necessarily um, the death of Christ in the sense that that's what actually uh, sa- uh, th- that's what actually saves you because the death of Christ doesn't actually save you in the death of Christ a- alone. Um, therefore, nobody can nobody can be saved at the point of Christ's death. Um, and and hear me out here. You 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 cannot be saved without the resurrection of Christ. So if you just believe in the death of of Christ, then you don't have a complete gospel. But if you believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ, then you have a complete gospel. And uh, if you're limiting the atonement, then that's that's a distortion of what the actual gospel is, and saying that not all men can be saved. And I think it says a lot about uh, the character of God. I think that. Um, the, uh, that when I'm defending the character of God and I'm defending the gospel which is which is essentially what, what Terry and I are doing Terry is saying well the gospel is limited to a particular people who God has loved from eternity past and known from eternity past and elected to be saved from eternity past and therefore will be saved because the atonement is only for them and I'm saying that the, the, that God who I love who loves me also gave himself for his enemies those who Uh, were against him, those who the wrath of God is being poured out on currently, and just, I I think that if you're really going to take the position of a limited atonement, um, that you're saying that God has loved you from all eternity past, and there's never been a time that you were ever at enmity with God, and uh, that um, you were never a child of wrath, that you were always an elect, that you were always chosen to be saved, and it's contrary to what Ephesians 2 says. Ephesians 2 actually says that you were in in times past you were the, chi- the children of wrath and you were fitted for destruction. So when we talk about uh, in Terry's affirmative statement in his opening statement, he says he, he gives a lot of these limited atonement verses. And notice when I gave my opening statement, I said Terry can lay out 120 different limited atonement verses that say there's a particular people that the atonement of Christ is limited to. but if I give just one, just one, that shows that it's an unlimited atonement that that would complete it it would destroy the limited atonement theory and uh... and terry said well i don't think that's very fair of you to do that because uh... you you i don't think you could apply that theologically to any other thing but essentially what we're doing here the theory of limited atonement adheres to uh... what we would call the negative inference fallacy that says well just because it says that christ died for this particular person his sheep his people uh... And, and for the church and for the bride and these particular groups of individuals and these particular groups of people that it's limited to those alone and therefore the intent, the extent, and the application are all to the same group of people. So what I'm saying is there's there's got to be a differentiation here that, that God actually sends out the gospel because he wants people to be saved I, and, and, and I'm not saying that we all know that the gospel goes out to people who are not saved um, I, I think that the gospel should go out. I think that you should give an invitation. I think that you should give people a chance to say, you know what, I, I received Jesus Christ as my own personal Savior. I don't, I don't think that, that Terry would actually take that position. I think that, that Terry would take the position that if God died for you, you will be saved. And, and notice that Terry did not say that you're saved at the point of belief, he said you are saved either in eternity past and the eternal decree, or you were saved at the point of the atonement on the cross when Christ actually paid for sin. Uh, I would like to hear in Terry's closing statement if he would actually um, affirm that you're saved upon belief and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Uh, that it doesn't, and, and and I'm not asking you even to deny some secret eternal decree that nobody knows. I, and I think that's a kind of a strange thing to say that it, it is a secret eternal decree. Uh, for the elect only, but it's a secret and eternal decree that nobody knows, but yet we're saying this is what it is. And that may be confusing to, to to come out that way, but it's confusing to me too. It's like, well, we don't know what the eternal decree is, but we're telling you the eternal decree is salvific uh, to to this people group, and they will be saved. So it's, it's a bit contradictory to me. I think that um, Terry has failed to show any verses that uh, really... Um, don't show an unlimited atonement in the fact that it's limited to a certain people group. I've, I've shown, especially in that cross-examination, um, that, that there were false prophets among the people who were actually bought, uh, denied the Lord who bought them. And Terry said, well, this is God the Father. These false prophets were bought by him, but it's not salvific. So I'd like to hear, just, if that's the one verse that I've got that would prove unlimited atonement, how Terry is, is going to get out of that and say, well, it's not actually salvific. And uh, with that, guys, I think that uh, I'm going to put just the simple gospel that Christ died for every single man, woman, and child. And if you're listening to this right now, you can be saved if you just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. Uh, The way that you do that is you simply cry out to him and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And uh, do it the best way you know how. Say uh, you recognize that you're a sinner. There's a need for a payment for your sin. And understanding that Christ paid for your sin, just say, you know what, I believe it. And by faith, you're accepting that Jesus Christ has once and for all paid for your sin. That's the gospel, guys. It's as simple as that, and anything more complicated is just diluting or, uh, or else exchanging this gospel for another. But uh, Terry, I'll turn it over to you for your five minutes, and then we'll we'll go from there.
1: We talked. The judge asked me to come on here and talk about the extent of the atonement and for whom did Christ die, and that's that's all I talked about. Uh, was for whom did Christ die? He died for a chosen, beloved people, and for them only. I didn't talk about um, the resurrection or the, the the faith and all those kind of things because we were talking about death, the death of Christ. And uh, I guess when Josh talks about death, he says we got to talk about living and death. You can't have one without the other: death and re- death and resurrection. I don't. Uh, that's all I got to say about that. Uh, mm-hmm. The extent of Christ's atonement is just for the elect. I think when Jesus says, "I laid down my life for the sheep," that's pretty. That's, that's pretty. That's pretty plain. Uh, he says, "I know you. You're my people." Um, the idea of election—you um, can't get away from it. These people were given to Christ, and He died for them. He suffered on their behalf. In Jude, in Jude one, verse one, striking words. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. There you have a similar reading to that, which is in Romans. Is there a people who have been set apart by God? In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says the same thing. There is a sanctified people set apart. He takes a death for every man so that he would be the firstborn of many sons. And these sons are the sanctified ones. If you if um, if you want to read the read the Bible in a universalist sense, and you really believe that the blood of Christ, that His uh, death on the cross, actually accomplished something. If you believe that Jesus Christ is actually in heaven now, sitting down, resting in something He accomplished, and it's for all people of all time. I didn't know I was an Owenite, but I guess I am, is that that does mean that all those persons uh, are redeemed and should, and should not be going to hell. I guess, I guess Josh said before, if I, I believe in double jeopardy, I said I didn't think I did. I said no, I don't talk about that kind of stuff. Talk about it that way, but, but I guess that's true. If Jesus paid for my sins and I go to hell anyway, then Jesus did not pay for my sins. If Jesus made conciliation between me and the whole world, then I should not go to hell. In fact, there's a guy in Utah named uh, Sean McCraney who actually uses all the passages that Josh uses for universal salvation to prove universalism that ultimately salvation is going going to be achieved for all persons because Christ has taken away everybody's sins, which, which uh, which which is a false doctrine. The blood of Christ takes away the sins of God's people. Extended atonement is to the elect, and the elect are revealed. We come to know our election in time by faith in Christ. He gives us the desire for him. Jesus said, if any man thirsts, him come unto me. We, Those who are thirsty, come to him. Not everybody is thirsting for Jesus. Not everybody is interested in Jesus. But those who are thirsting for him and want him can have him. And the reason they can't have him is because... He died for them, and he died for them because they were chosen by the Father and given to Christ. So in Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse number 1, I thought that was a pretty cut-and-dry deal there, but um, Josh, Josh is a stubborn guy. <laughs> He's a stubborn guy. Despotate is a word that doesn't refer to Jesus. And I try to make it plain that there is a purchasing of, of corporate Israel, That's what that passage is about. Corporate Israel purchased by Jehovah um, through the offering of the firstborn uh, through the the blood that night on the Passover night. It's not as it wasn't salvific. Those people were not saved from their sins. They were saved from bondage in Israel. And among those persons, they were false teachers. Just like in the church today, there are false teachers. And they're going to be doomed just like the false teachers of that era were that's what Peter is talking about in that passage. Well, I think i got maybe a few seconds left, but thanks for letting me come on and talk to you, Josh. It's been fun.
0: Sweet, man. Hey, I appreciate you coming on as well. It has been fun. Um, and I, th- I think that wh- any discussion on the atonement is something that both of us would enjoy talking about because obviously we're talking about our Lord and Savior and, and what he's done for us. So um, let's go ahead and get, your- get to yeah, go ahead.
1: Thanks for telling. Thanks for telling me that I'm a, that I'm an Owen follower. Dude, I guess you, I have to. Re- I guess I have to really check it out. I've yeah, never. I've never.
0: I keep interrupting you. I never read Owen. Yeah, you got to check him out, man. You guys are saying the exact same thing. So, um, but just keep in mind that um, he's been refuted by a lot of guys. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so. Uh, let's see. Uh, the first question that I can actually see on here is from a guy named Bill Hardiker. I'm going to put it up on the screen for the audience to see as well. This is the first question I see. It may not be. If it's not, then just type in a question and let it, let me know who it's to. Uh, Bill says this. He says, uh, "How I think this is addressed to you." Terry he says, "How is it possible to believe in universal, in the universal election of the dead unborn, but apply something?" Oh, this might be to me but apply something different to overgrown fetuses. Not being smart here. I know it is sensitive. You may ignore this. Uh, Bill, I think that you're addressing that to me. Or universal election. No, that was you, Terry, because you said that all of the unborn, yeah. or I don't think you said yeah. the unborn, you said that. Yeah, anyway, mm-hmm. how do you want to address that? Well, I'll,
1: I'll answer like this. the uh, Most of the Reformed confessions say that elect infants dying in infancy Um uh, are regenerated through a special work of God But I don't know that all infants Are not elect Because uh, it seems to me that In the Old Testament When Israel is killing the children They're offering the children on the, on the altars To the pagan gods God calls them my children Jesus said about the little children Of such are the kingdom of, of heaven I think that these the, infants That they belong to God and I think that when they die, um, they're all no, because nobody dies bef- before their appointed time. You're appointed unto death, Hebrews 9:27. And so, if an infant dies, they were appointed to that kind of death by God. And I think that the Lord, um, I think they're His. That's my own personal view. Um, denying it to overgrown fetuses. AKA adults. <laughs> uh, you know, elect adults go to heaven too. The unelect ones don't. So, there is, you have to deal with the idea of, of why they die. Why do infants die at all? You know, so, because uh, of sin.
0: Well, uh, let me take a stab at it. Um, I think that uh, when it comes to infants dying, I don't think it has to do with election. Um, I don't believe that any infants that die, and I believe that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I, I, therefore I believe that um, life begins at conception. Uh, therefore, abortion is, is a, a, something that we need to address as Christians. I don't think we need to be silent about it. I think that this is, this is, um, this is our own holocaust, um, and, and it's not something to take lightly. But what I would say is um, both the unborn and the infant. Um, what I believe in, what's called the age of accountability. I believe that sin is not imputed where there's no knowledge of the law, and therefore, uh, any child who's under the age of accountability, anyone who, with a mental handicap, um, anyone who you know in that in, in some scenario like that, um, where you don't know sin. Where in sin, the definition of sin. There's many different uh, different aspects of the definition of sin, but um, sin is someone who knows to do good and doesn't do it. Sin is Uh, anything that you do that's not by faith. Sin is a transgression of the law. So infants can't do that. They don't have any knowledge of the law. They don't know that they're doing anything good or doing anything bad or good. Um, So in that sense, I believe that all all infants go to heaven. Um, I don't believe, therefore, that it's a matter of election because I don't believe in the Calvinistic election. I believe in (laughs) the election of the Bible. but anyway, so that would be my answer to that. Um, let's go to this next question that I see that came up here. Uh, it says... Uh, from, can I say something? Yeah, go I ahead. just want to
1: say one thing about that baby yep. business. I think that the... the, the what, I, what I said about the infants, I think that is part of the way that God redeems some people from every kindred, tongue, and tribe. Because there, there are people groups who have never heard the gospel yet and will never hear the gospel yet, but... Babies in those, amongst those people who die in infancy of some disease, or barbaric sacrifice, I think that is part of the way that God gathers His
0: people from all, all those tribes.
1: That's that's my that's my theory
0: anyway. Uh, I could be wrong. Yeah, I've heard go that. Go ahead. go ahead. I've heard that. Um, so, anyways, all right. Let's get next question. That I've got this from Wesley Tomlinson. Let me put this on the broadcast. He says, uh, the gospel. Well, that's not it. Let me get rid of that one. It was the next point that he made. He says, Pastor Basham, can you help me with Hebrews 2 9, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man? Yeah,
1: verse 9 of Hebrews. <clears throat> so, verse, the every man there. It goes good it goes on down to verse 10 for became him for whom are all things about whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings so the the many sons there is connected to the every man and you can see he's the captain of their salvation he's tasting death for them he's their captain he makes them perfect through his suffering for Both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Jesus is born of God. These believers are born of God. And the way he uses the word sanctified, he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are set apart. You know, elected is the way I would say that. um, Are all of God. For which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren because they've been set apart by the Father to him. So every man is the many sons. And also they who are sanctified by God.
0: Yeah, so um, let me respond to that. Uh, I think that this is one of the most powerful um, passages in, in all of the Bible, because in, in, in verse 5 and 6 it says, For unto the angels hath he not put into subjection the world to come whereof we speak. So and he goes on to say, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? And uh Um, I I think that that in itself is is one of the most important questions in the Bible because it shows how important man actually is to God. So in that sense, when God became a man, he not only was the second Adam, uh, but it shows you a great typology in the Old Testament that the first Adam brought sin into the whole world and therefore the second Adam paid for the sin of the whole world, tasting uh, death for every single man. So when you see the him that sanctifieth, that's Jesus Christ, and then those who are sanctified, uh, that's those who have actually placed their trust and faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And uh, there's not a distinction um, in the elect here. The elect isn't even in the passage. So I don't. I don't. I just don't see how a Calvinist could get that out of it. Um, well, the, the
1: word, it's the word sanctified. A sanctified people are a set apart people. Aka chosen people, aka elect people. That's that's what sanctified. They're set apart, just like at your church. The auditorium is usually sanctified; it's set apart to a certain purpose, and so are these persons.
0: Yeah, but that's the reason
1: why. And it says they are sanctified. who are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. They're they're born of God. They're set apart by God for Christ, and that's um, that's my.
0: Well, she I think that so. he's. I just think he's drawn the distinction that Christ tasted death for every man, and then he's he's showing that there are some there are people who are sanctified by the sanctifier, Jesus Christ. So, um, I, I think that obviously the question is structured around who did Christ actually taste death for, which was what <laughs> was what the whole debate was about. So, I think both of our positions are pretty clear on that. Um, obviously, I would say that he. But when it says for every man, that's every single individual, I think Terry has drawn the distinction and saying that every man is actually the ones who are sanctified in the next verse. So
1: It's the many, many
0: sons. And Calvin says the many is the all. <laughs> um, all right, so let's see. Um, they're having a conversation. Somebody's having a different conversation in the chat line. So Let me see if we've got any other questions. All right, Justin Denton says this. Let me put this up here. Uh, Justin Denton says, question for Terry. At what age does the children not become the elect if they are all the elect as infants? What age does that change and what Bible verse do you use for that?
1: Well, like I said, it's my it's my own theory
0: about it. Uh,
1: if a kid doesn't die when he's, a, you know, an infant, then uh, obviously he wouldn't be one of those elect persons. But, um, because I, I, really, I mean, that's a theory. I don't have a lot of. I, I use my verses, for for when a person ch- would change. I don't believe people change from elect to non-elect. Um, if a kid dies, you know, in infancy, I think they're elected and they, they go to heaven, because salvation is not contingent upon a person's response. They're going to respond when they're regenerated. So, um, it does They don't change. If a if someone is elect, they're elect. You know. From conception, before conception, in conception, all the way through their life until conversion, and then yeah, they're saved in time. Um, I think I think that's I think that's the answer to his question. Yeah, I don't, I don't I don't think they change. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, and and I'll I'll give my take on it too. I I think that I think Terry was pretty consistent in in how he presented that because he did say that it's not something that he. would he can go to any verse and say, well, this is where it's at. I think he's saying that this is his own personal conviction, that if they die, it is that they are elect because it's God's uh, process of filling uh, that yeah, election. Con- con-
1: conviction is too strong a word. It's a theory of mine. Okay. Um, it's a theory. There's a guy, I, I heard a, a preacher in Alabama. He posited the question. He said, why didn't anybody ever ask Jesus? or the apostles, in Old Testament or New, where their dead kids were? Why didn't anybody ever ask? Why isn't that in the Bible? No mother ever came to Jesus and said, Lord, my baby died. Is he in heaven or is he somewhere else? Nobody ever ever asked that question. And uh, his theory was that they all knew. Everybody knew that children went to heaven. Uh, He said another option is, they didn't know. Or uh, a third option, which sounds kind of cold. They didn't care.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that if you really wanted to to look for a passage on that um, in the Old Testament, if you go to Jeremiah 35, 18, uh, there's some kids who are actually slain. and, uh, and that, that,
1: Yeah, that's where he calls them my kids, isn't it?
0: Well, it, he calls them Close the children up. of Rachel, I believe. Mm-hmm. Or, um, where, what is that? Yeah, let's turn there. If, if we got a second. If you guys are still hanging on now, I mean, you're, you've are you done a pretty good job hanging on. So, Um let's see if I can find it. Jeremiah 35. Yeah, the words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which, yeah. Because the sons of uh, Jonadab the son of Rechab have performed the command of their father and commanded them not to do, but this people hath not hearkened unto me. Um,
1: I think the passage you might. I don't know. Uh, just...
0: I know. So I've 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 seen a guy who makes this connection with uh, uh, Luke two, where Herod is 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 uh, killing all the. Um, the new the firstborn. Mm-hmm. And um, they make a connection here. But oh it's verse nineteen. The son of Rechab shall not want me. No, that's I'd have to look at that and find words of reference to the kids and get back to you on that. But okay, next question. Uh, let's see. My question is so this is Bill Hardiker again. My question to Pastor Basham, is do you offer the universal tender of salvation to all men, and what is the basis of that offer? That's a good question. I, that's actually something that I wanted to ask you in the cross X. Um, and and then beyond that, I'd like to know: do you, yeah, do you give an invitation for somebody to be saved in your church? I don't.
1: It's 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 all it's always a big argument amongst people. The gospel is not an offer. It's a declaration. We proclaim, we preach the gospel. And uh, so so it's not an offering. I say to people every Sunday, every Sunday afternoon, Wednesday night, um, when I'm out witnessing the people, I tell them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the answer. He's the one. I say that to them. And I go, to, I, you know, I go down, I go through the Romans road, you know, 310, 323, 623, A, B, Romans 5, 8. Romans ten nine through 13. I go through all that stuff with people. Tell them the gospel. Tell them Christ is the only way. And they have to believe on Christ if they're going to be saved. Uh, and I leave them with it. I mean, the gospel is a declaration. Uh, believe on Christ. So, that's what I do. Um,
0: okay. Uh, and my take is, yeah, we should give an invitation because the gospel... The gospel is not a declaration that you should be saved. It's a, it's, it's a proclamation that this is something that you should actually believe in order to be saved. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a common distinction between what the Calvinists would believe, Terry, and what I would believe, the traditionalists. So um, I believe that um, you should give a bold proclamation of the gospel, um, which calls all men to repent everywhere. Uh, and therefore, that it's able and available to all men that they have the ability to repent. And I think that if we, if we, <laughs> I won't go to John six, but um, anyway. So I think that you should, and I think you should. It, there's nothing wrong with an altar call. There's nothing wrong with giving an invitation. There's nothing wrong with saying a prayer. That's not easy I'll, believism. I, I think. Yeah, that, let yeah, let me ahead. point
1: out that uh, you know mo- most Calvinistic churches, and, and and even some non-Calvinistic churches. They don't give altar calls and that kind of thing, because it's, they're not in this. It's not in the scriptures that you do it. That you do it that way. That people have to be. There's no altar in a New Testament church. I mean, I know. I know those seem like minor things, but there's no offerings. There's no sacrifices. There's no altar in a well, Christian church. Well, there
0: weren't any. Yeah, there it, yeah, it, there weren't even any in the uh, in the temples that they were using and. In, in, the early church either i mean we call them altar calls as a sense of you're bending your knee to the altar uh in in your heart not literally bending the knee you know physically but yeah the altar of your heart
1: yeah the 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 invitation is uh it's it's a declaration it's it's an invitation i guess it is an invitation in a sense it's an invitation to the thirsty to the hungry
0: to those who are Sparing in their sins. That's right, and there's so, a lot of sinners that are thirsty and, that's, and hungry.
1: And that's what you have when you have Peter on the day of Pentecost. He preached his sermon, and they came to him and said, "What must we do?" He declared the gospel. Then they inquired, and he said, "Believe on Christ." And uh, but, so that's that's all I got to say about that. Yeah.
0: Well, I would say that that was a national call, and, and then the individual call was in Acts eight when the Ethiopian eunuch said, uh, "What?" Or when they said. Uh, Was that Acts 8? Or was it that they say, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved?
1: So here's what you... I mean, I I don't know what you're talking about with that. You had Peter with a bunch of people and Philip with one person. I mean, it's it's the same either way.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's let's move on to another question. Uh, Let's see. Um, Valerie Basham says, who cares about what Calvin says? Um, so I don't know Terry do Calvinists actually care what Calvin said
1: it's a, it's a good question uh, I've never I've never read Calvin's Institutes until this year and I've read
0: a little bit of them every day what do you um, think about him he was 25 when he wrote those
1: the dude, dude was pretty smart yeah. I mean
0: uh, of
1: course everybody was smarter back then because they didn't have TV and Twitter to make them dumb that's true, <laughs> true. and uh, And they weren't worried about anyway uh, I don't take I don't take my positions from Calvin just like I was surprised to find out that I agree with John Owen
0: Uh, oh by the way this guy named John Evans says that you're an Owenite (laughs) yeah I
1: guess I guess I am I don't I don't know maybe Gill was an Owenite and uh, I didn't know it but I I don't it isn't I'm I'm not I was not in, in none of my election none of my presentation always making an appeal to authority to what Calvin said or anybody else said I just thought about what the Bible says and um, it does it doesn't matter if um, what Calvin says not now I'll say I'm not a I'm not a reformed person I don't bill myself as reformed it's confusing to people because people think I'm reformed but I don't believe in all, all the things that Reformed Baptists believe I'm not a Sabbatarian I um, I'm in the new covenant, I don't live by the law, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, and so uh, sometimes I get called a doctrinal antinomian, because I don't observe the Sabbath day, I don't I don't live by the law, um, the Old Testament laws, I'm not, most Calvinists are lordship salvation people, I don't really, I don't, I think that's just a confusing term, uh, lordship salvation, what does that mean, you know? Um, I think that when a person is saved, there's a progress, of, there's a process of sanctification that begins, and it's gonna and it is carried out throughout their life, uh, to greater and lesser degrees. I mean, forward, forwards and backwards. I mean, my mother was became a Christian when she was a teenager, and uh, she struggled with lots of crap, man. I mean, she was dope and all that stuff. Then my dad was saved in the 70s, just like my mom was. He was 16 years old. got Got born again, and he quit drinking and smoking and everything in one night. But that wasn't my mother's experience. <laughs> but but there's a process. It began a process of sanctification, um, of the working of the Spirit. So I don't know the Lordship, salvation stuff. I don't get into that because I I think people, just like Calvinism, people don't always understand what you mean when you say the words. You know what I'm saying?
0: yeah, and I, I was that that obviously made me think of um, what you know, perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints, whatever you want to call it. But that's not the topic of tonight. So I think that's gonna wrap it up. So um, once again, Terry, we're at a li- we're a little over two hours, so that went longer than I thought it was going to. but thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. I think that that was good. I think it was profitable. I think you did a good job of representing. Uh, the Calvinistic perspective of limited atonement. You mean, and,
1: John, you mean the Owen perspective? Of
0: yeah, <laughs> even even though you don't know you're an Owenite. So. <laughs> That's but anyways, so thanks again, guys, who are viewing live. And, well, let's see. Okay, so do you want to answer one more question from Bill? Yeah. All right, Bill says, is it safe to assume that you do? Well, last question, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, is it safe to assume that you don't say to people indiscriminately that Jesus died for you? So, yeah, that's pretty good. And that's kind of in line with what we were talking about.
1: I, I don't. I don't say to people Jesus died for you. I say He is the Savior. Believe on Him, and because um, I don't. I don't know who. I don't know who the atonement is for, and I don't worry about. Um, I. I indiscriminately preach the gospel to people I proclaim the, the good news of Jesus Christ that there's salvation in him now it is not me that can that convinces people of salvation the Holy Spirit does that um, some people hear the gospel and it's just like water off a duck's back it's like listening to a football game it's dull but there are I some people who here who hear the gospel and who hear football talk and they're like sign me up but um and that's the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in a person.
0: So, um, yeah, I'll just answer it. I, I, I think that you should, um, you can give an indiscriminate invitation because, not because you don't know who the elect are, but because every single person has a genuine offer of salvation uh, because the atonement was provided for all. So, um, I'm, not, you
1: know. I'm not sure that what you said, what you think I said, I said I tell you, you, you tell every person, you preach the gospel to every person, so it's an indiscriminate proclamation.
0: Yeah, but, but he's the, saying but you don't tell was, everyone I, that Christ do I tell, died. the question
1: do I tell people Jesus died for them? Yeah, I don't tell them, I because I, I, I can't say that I don't know. I can say without a doubt Jesus died for sinners, and uh, you should trust him.
0: Yeah, I I think that I don't think he was he was talking about the proclamation of the gospel. I think he was making the application that you could actually make the proclamation to the congregation. Christ died for you, all inclusively. So um, I I say that you can. I don't think that consistently you would be able to do that. But what's your take on it?
1: That I can uh, that I can say to people that Jesus died for them. Yeah. I can't I can't say that because I, I don't I don't know who Jesus died for. He died for the chosen people.
0: Okay. And
1: um, but, you, but that's not where you're, you know, that, that's not the elements of gospel proclamations that tell people that Jesus died for you. You tell them Jesus died and he rose again and uh, he's at the right hand of the Father and he is the only he is the only way of salvation. Um, a, a lot a lot of things people think have to be said or need to be said you don't really find it in the apostolic Preaching or teaching. Even when Jesus is giving these his his sermons, you know, John 10, He 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 says it's for many. He says it's not for all, it's for the sheep. They were given to me by the Father. And that's why you guys don't believe because you weren't given to me by the Father. In John, in John chapter 8, you know, the Pharisees, the Jews, they say, We're Abraham's people. And he says, Truly, you are Abraham's people, but you're not of Abraham. But they are natural Abraham, but they're not of spiritual Abraham. He says, this is "Why you reject me? is because you have your father the devil. You're not uh, born of born of God, or the sons of Abraham, the, the spiritual sons of Abraham, uh, like Paul talks about in Galatians." So it's.
0: Um, I know, think to, we need to have a debate on election sometime.
1: Yeah, it's it's nice if you can talk about all all of it together. Yeah, because I listened to the total depravity debate, and that was that was a pretty cool debate.
0: Yeah, it was because fun, man.
1: Inability. Inability is the extent of that. I mean, I listen to you say, "No man can come," and I mean,
0: you're
1: like, "What?" And just like with Peter, there, I'm Second Peter two one. I'm reading it, and I think it's. I'm thinking it's as plain as a nose on your face. And just so like late- John six forty four. I'm like, Josh, clean off your glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Look again.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you know who Leighton Flowers is. Yes. Leighton Flowers says, uh, he says, you know, you got a picture that uh, you've got those pictures, you know, where you want, want, the picture is either a vase or it's a woman or an old man or a young woman, um, and it just depends on you know what you're looking at and what you see. Well, I mm-hmm. think that I think that that's what we're looking at in some of these scriptures, it, and especially in, and with the with the lens of Calvinism versus um, provisionism or traditionalism, that yeah. it's not. Yeah.
1: So. Right. I, I agree because once you, I told my, our church uses the, the New Hampshire Confession, and when you read the New Hampshire Confession as a non-Calvinist, you're like, hey, that's beautiful stuff, you know, it's 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 free will, it's the whole nine yards. But then when you read it with Calvinistic glasses on, you can you can see the Calvinistic elements of it, because it's what you use to interpret the Scriptures. I I work from the Bible, not dispensationally. Although I guess I am dispensational because I don't do the things the Jews did, there is an element of that.
0: Yeah, but you are a Jew. I am a Jew. If you're Israel. Yeah, I'm
1: spiritual. Yeah, spiritual Israel.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, so I'm,
1: I'm in the new. I'm in the new. The new covenant, which is different. You know what I'm saying?
0: Well, okay. Maybe we need to do an uh, election in Israel sometime. All right. So this last question, John Evans directs it to me. The first question to me, so I feel pretty honored. John, thanks. He says josh to what extent is the atonement unlimited uh, is it at least limited to those who believe um no it's it's not the extent of the atonement is, i thought that i did a pretty decent job laying out what the extent of the atonement uh the extent to what extent is the atonement unlimited so i think that when we're looking at it from the creditor-debtor debt debt tour, um point of view um that you would have to have universalism if the atonement was unlimited but because I'm making the distinction that um, there's a difference between uh, the payment for sin and the application of sin, uh, that therefore you can have an unlimited atonement without having universalism because the application of the atonement is therefore limited to those who, who believe. So if, if I was actually going to say, um, if, I be- if I believe what I believe is actually limited, I would say that it's limited glorification and not limited atonement because... Uh, glorification um, obviously is going to be limited to those who um, actually put their faith and trust in Christ and therefore it's not a limited atonement it's a limited glorification and that's on um, the part of those who actually um, accept or reject the gospel once they hear it not based off of any eternal decree but actual genuine um, ability to hear and receive that gospel and then he says is it at least limited to those who believe no I don't believe the atonement is limited to those who believe I believe I believe that the atonement is actually, um, has actually paid for the sins of every man, woman, child who ever entered the world. I don't take the Owen view that there's some qualitative um, uh, aspect to the blood of Christ and that atonement because, you know, that's kind of a really tough position to stand on. Um, and it, I, I reject it. So I'd say, yeah, it's unlimited atonement and therefore applicable to those who. Um, believe so go ahead Terry
1: so you, you believe that the, you don't believe the benefits as in salvation you believe that's only for those who believe right yes so isn't that what the atonement brings about salvation no.
0: well the so yeah if you want to say that it makes it possible yeah. yeah It the atonement is definitely a provision for salvation
1: okay so like uh, you know, you got some guy in Africa, and he's just living un- under under your theory. Everybody's everybody's uh, uh, atoned, a sinner atoned for, paid for. In prospect, but not actuality, right?
0: No, in actuality and prospect, because okay, so yeah, so so
1: the guy who's living in Africa, um, he dies. Uh, He go. He goes to hell because why?
0: So this is the whole point of why I was quoting Davenant, who who refutes Owen. Both are Calvinists, and Davenant actually says this is he's rejecting the double payment or double jeopardy theory because the there's a condition to it. There's a condition to that payment. The payment's been made. But the condition is accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So even if the the payment's been made and and you reject Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's not applied.
1: Okay, so you have so there's there's Josh, and Jesus. All right, and you got two accounts, two ledgers, and you're in the negative, or you got zero, right? Mm-hmm. And there's God on this side, and there's 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 the payment of Christ on the on the one side. Yeah. Do you, you don't think that when you believe on Christ that moves to your side?
0: Well, when you believe on Christ, absolutely, that's when it's applied. But but even even Dabney is making the distinction that it's more than just a credit debt, debit type of situation that there's actually a they there not just a payment, but it's an it's an actual uh, um, judicial punishment for sin. So, and the condition is built on and structure around belief so yeah I would agree completely with the last way that you worded that that it's actually applied once you believe
1: and then and, and that's a credit debit scenario right what I just described
0: it is but it's conditional
1: I thought you were saying that there there was no conditions the no, condition saying, is
0: faith. I'm saying the atonement is unconditional to everyone I'm saying the application of that atonement is conditional upon belief
1: So, the benefits of the atonement are not realized until a person believes.
0: Well, they're not realized until they hear the gospel. (laughs) So,
1: just hearing the gospel is not
0: salvation, right? No, you have to believe. So, so that's what I said. So,
1: the benefits are realized when they believe, right? Yes. So, the benefit is limited to those who believe, right?
0: Uh. No, that doesn't mean that the benefit doesn't exist for those who don't believe. So that's still the negative inference fallacy. It doesn't mean that because is, those who believe have it applied to them that it isn't um, actual for those who don't believe. Uh, so that's to say, well, just because it's only applied to those who believe doesn't mean that the sins were paid for by those who don't believe or for those who don't believe. So, yeah. What?
1: What? Why? Why do you hold? Do you hold that position to keep you from becoming a limited atonement proponent? Is that why you do that?
0: No, because I actually find that biblical. So see, I think it's more consistent too, because I don't see in, in in those thirteen verses that I read about unlimited atonement. I I I, I didn't see you actually. <laughs> this might sound rude. You didn't refute any one of them. I mean, I, you know, so you just read other limiting um, portions, but. Anyways,
1: mm-hmm. I'm, re- I'm really, I'm really, con- when you said that you don't believe that the ben- you don't believe the benefits are limited to believers, that seems contradictory to what, to your position because if they have the benefit without faith, without believing, then they don't need to believe.
0: No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's a provision which means that it's available. Um, so
1: that's so that's pro- that's prospective, right?
0: Uh that would be pro- that would be that would be prospective, yeah.
1: So you believe it's the benefits are only for believers. Right?
0: I think I th- no, what I'm saying is, yeah, so the benefit is available to anyone who be- doesn't believe or does believe. It's effectual but, but, but- or whatever you want to say. Yeah. But do
1: unbelievers have the benefit?
0: They don't have it it's a- applied. There, it, it, it's there. It, it's, it's not applied. Yeah.
1: Is it? Is it theirs?
0: It is theirs if if yeah. It's theirs if they um, if they accept it.
1: So it's so it's not theirs until they accept it.
0: Correct. Well, so the it's benefit- theirs, but so, they have to so accept it. It's like God wrote this, wrote your name on this gift. He he gave it to you. Says here's this gift for you and you you either say well i i want it or i don't want it you know so that's that's kind of what it is
1: so is it is it yours is it yours when it's, your name is on it or is it yours when you receive it you're going you're going to say it's yours both times right
0: yeah it's it's yours but if you don't take it you i mean you don't possess it so it's a so possession it's, so,
1: it's, so it's not
0: yours it is yours but
1: i don't have it right
0: it is so <sighs> God has provided salvation for everyone. It is everyone's in the sense that it is, it's prospective for everyone, okay? Uh, if you want to use that term. It's actual or effective to those who believe.
1: So the benefit is limited to believers only.
0: Yeah, if you want to say that, I'm fine with that.
1: Well, that's what the guy asked you right off the bat, and you said you did not agree with that.
0: What did, What did he say?
1: Just what, just what you said. The benefit, Josh. Do you believe that the benefits of salvation are limited to believers? You said, no.
0: Well, um, then, then, then all me that. let what he actually need. wrote. He okay. says, "To what extent is the atonement is it at least limited to those who believe?" So, no, he didn't. I was drawing the distinction between the extent and the, and the application. So, the the extent is not limited to those who only to only to those who believe but to the whole world it's uh, is it at least limited to those who believe no I don't believe there's any limit on the atonement or of, of the extent of the atonement so no
1: so 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 do I have to believe to have the benefit
0: yeah which would be the application that's not the extent that's not what he asked he asked about the extent not the application
1: well I, I think I think his question probably is, do Are believers only saved Or are, is everybody saved Because of the atonement Because the word atonement means to bring out one It's our reconciliation Is the taking away of hostility Propitiation is expiation Taking away of sins Ransom is free If everybody is freed The whole world is, is ransomed The benefit of that ransom Has to be limited to believers Right
0: well, let's put it into an Old Testament context. So when you actually had the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, was it limited to Israel only, or could anybody come? I would say that if if we're, if we're actually saying that the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament is a picture of the Atonement of Christ, and I believe it is, that it's available to anyone who wanted to come and be atoned for. So in, in the sense that those who would bring a lamb and bring it to the high priest and give it to the high priest and it would be sacrificed for the Atonement of Israel as a corporate nation— That it's applied to everyone who came by faith. So therefore, if we're looking at that as a type of Christ, as the Lamb, as the atonement for our sins, it's open and available to anyone who wants to believe the gospel. It's not limited to say, well, yeah, you can come or you can't. I don't believe anybody was sitting outside the gate going, "Uh, no, you're not allowed in here. You're not the elect. And that's essentially what you've gotten—a picture of the salvation of what a Calvinist is presenting, and what I'm presenting is—it's not limited to somebody standing outside the gate. The gate being Jesus Christ, the door to heaven, and saying, "Well, nope, you can't come in," uh, or "You can." I think it's—it's—it's it's, it's a provisional atonement that anyone who wants to come can.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in, in in illustration like that, I think you run into problems because not just anybody could offer. They had they had to, they had to be a Jew the high priest himself when he's making the offering in the holy place on his breastplate he has the stones that are the the twelve tribes of Israel he's making atonement for the covenant people alone so it's it's, it's provided for them for those persons for the for, for Israel that's why uh, in fact if, if any uh, strangers wanted to visit or eat the Passover with them you know they had to have the old trim if they're going to eat the pass, if they're going to eat the Passover, because they had to be brought into the cov into the covenant, it was it was for that covenant people only.
0: Yeah, but so it was I available don't... to Gentiles as well.
1: It was available to Gentiles as well.
0: Yeah, it wasn't limited only to those twelve tribes.
1: If, if if they remained Gentiles, or if they became Jews,
0: well, if they became a Jew, which is a picture of conversion in the New Testament.
1: Yeah, so so it's only so the so the redemption was only for those who were Jews, right?
0: Okay, so because the
1: Gentile to... had to become a Jew first to receive the atonement. Yes. So he had to enter the he had to be he had to be a part of the covenant people. It wasn't for everybody. It's only for those who were in the covenant.
0: But they anybody could come and be a part of the covenant.
1: But they had to join the they had to join the covenant. Which is what we're first.
0: saying. You have to get in Christ, <laughs> which is by believing the gospel. Anybody can believe it.
1: No, what what you're no you're missing the point, is you're saying it's for everybody, Gentiles included. Yes. But I'm saying it's not. It's only for Jews, because before a Gentile could have it, he had to be a Jew.
0: Yeah, I'm fine with that. That's fine. So but that's, it's so a corporate. It was a corporate thing. So
1: true. It's it's a type. It's a type and a shadow of what Christ came and did for the covenant people chosen Amen. in Christ, for the foundation of the world.
0: So you would have to disprove that there were some people in the Old Testament that were not able to come
1: that were not able to come? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain that um, Exodus 16, in the three, the three times people had to come, only males had to come. So women and children didn't have to come, but just the, the males, um, I guess boys had to come. So it wasn't everybody had to go up there to be a part of it, just the males on those three big feasts.
0: Well, I wonder why Mary was going to Jerusalem for the Day of Atonement when uh, when Jesus was born. I, I mean, that's kind of confusing to me.
1: Yeah. Why was she going to... When Jesus was born?
0: Well, before he was born. She was why making was she a trip to, to Jerusalem. She
1: made a trip to Jerusalem before she was born. Wasn't she going to see her cousin, Elizabeth?
0: Uh... I I don't I I couldn't tell you. How how long are you wanting to go? We're at two and a half hours. I'm getting tired. I got to get up at five thirty.
1: I got to get up at five ten.
0: Oh dang man!
1: But uh, but I uh, I'm I'm ready to quit if you are. I mean I could talk about
0: this stuff all night because yeah. I I love it. Dude same here. I, well we'll I do it again it. sometime if you're not too mad at me. So
1: no I'm not I'm not mad at you. I'm just concerned for
0: you. Why? I'm concerned, you I'm concerned? I'm concerned for you
1: because. No, I think there might be something wrong between your ears.
0: <laughs> well, good thing my heart is with Jesus because he doesn't care what's between my ears.
1: Well, he might.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, maybe you can explain that sometime. But, Anyways, I'm going to go to my closing scene. Thanks again, Terry. Thanks to those seven who are still online. You guys are troopers. I'm going to go to this closing scene here and uh, see if we can wrap up. All right, man. Have a great night. Thanks. You too, Terry. See ya all right so man that was fun thank you guys for hanging out with us uh and uh please like subscribe share this uh we're relatively new we've been doing this for about two months and plan on keeping on going i think this is fun i think it's profitable and i'd like to get the word out there that we're new we're growing and uh trying to present a gospel from a traditional perspective as well as a doctrinal perspective on the traditional side of not just uh, teriology but other things uh, like dispensationalism, which uh, Terry had mentioned is something that um, is relatively new. Most people uh, say that it's uh, originated with John Darby, which is false, That you can trace it all the way back to the first century, uh, which is why I'm going to be doing a series with additional text. I'm more than willing to do that as well, which is where the King James came from. Have a good night. We'll talk to you later.